We had irrigated land, we had army. We had goods traveling across the sea, we had navy. We had goods traveling across the air, we had air force. So what happens when civilization expands its footprint into cyberspace? How do we secure zero trust, permissionless access to our data in cyberspace? Hello there, how are you all doing? How many of you made out here to Miami? I'm here with Danny. We've had a good first few days and we're off to the conference today. So if you're at the conference, we're going to be there most of the day. We've got a booth with all our rail Bedford gear. Come down, come and say hello. We've got the trophies with us. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Iris Energy, the largest NASDAQ-listed Bitcoin miner using 100% renewable energy. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got a show a lot of you have been waiting for a long time. I've got Jason Lowry on the show. Now, Jason recently wrote a book called Soft War, which has split the crowd. He's been questioning the role of Bitcoin with nation states, hash power, and how Bitcoin may be warfare. Now, I wanted to get into it with him, so... I said to him, when I'm here in Miami, let's get together. Let's sit down. Let's discuss his book. Let's discuss his thesis. And so we did it. I'm not going to tell you too much about what we talked about. I'll let you get into it. I know a lot of you wanted to hear it, but I do want your feedback. If you have any questions about this or anything else, please do drop me an email. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Jason, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, good. Good, man. Um, a lot of people have been asking me to do this interview with you for quite some time. Uh, and I knew we had to do it in person. And uh, we met previously in Boston. What was it? About was it a year and a half ago? Yeah, it was the end of 2021. It was like two days after I got on Twitter. Wow. Yes, it was. Uh, but it started out as a LinkedIn post, right? All of this? Yeah, I've been posting about Bitcoin on LinkedIn for a while. And one day... I like couldn't update my LinkedIn because like it it just wouldn't load. And I found out that it was because so many people were like logging in to like check. And then I found out that I was going viral on Twitter. And then Greg Foss eventually DM'd me and was like, dude, you have to come over to Twitter because people are talking about you and everything that you've been saying. I was like, I was just like being uh there's like some shit coiner on LinkedIn that I was just like telling off. So I was like, I don't know if I want to go to Twitter. That, that's a uh, that's a jungle. Yeah. Uh, and he he convinced me. And like day one on Twitter was was trial by fire. I was you know just baptized in fire on day one. And we met like two days after that. I didn't realize it was that close. Yeah. yeah. So we had that dinner in Boston with Greg Foss. Uh, but yeah, no. I mean, look, Twitter. Tw- I don't think people realize how hard Twitter can be when you first go on and you get a lot of attention. I mean, I didn't get it like you did, but there are times you get a lot of attention. It's, it's a hard thing to know how to deal with, and you, you you kind of learn by making mistakes. Yeah. Yeah, uh, the first, like, I want to say like 10 hours, I had 10,000 followers. Hmm. It was so fast that people were convinced that it was like a government attack that like there's no possible way some rando can have 10,000 followers on day 1 this must be some like government thing and so instantly right out of the gate like if i just like looked at my tags and i didn't even know how to like turn that off like turn those notifications off so i just get on and i just see nothing but like hate uh, and <laughs> i was like yeah i don't know if i'm cut out for twitter like i don't think they're going to like the government guy here the spook. Yeah, the spook. And and so uh, that was like, right after we met, like the next day there was 
There was like AI memes of us, you know, with like CIA in the background. They were hilarious, but you know, it was just it was an interesting experience those first that first week on Twitter. All right. Well, look, I think it's been an interesting experience for what I mean. Like I followed you, and as somebody who's got in fights, I've seen you fighting and blocking and people not liking what you're saying. And look, we'll get into that. There's a lot to cover, but I do want to I do want to cover what we talked about at dinner first. Uh, I mentioned that before we started. Uh, that was really fascinating to me. I just, I kind of just sat there listening uh, to you talk about that. That was, was that what you studied at MIT? So when I was at MIT, I was part of their system design and management program, which is just like systems engineering. Uh, it's a field of engineering that kind of encompasses like every subset of engineering. It's really popular for uh, like higher level middle managers in engineering positions. Because I already have a graduate graduate degree. I'm an astronautical engineer by trade. So the Space Force sent me to MIT to learn systems engineering. And so uh, what's cool about that is I can study systems, which incorporates everything from okay. biology to anything that you can think of is can be framed as a system. And the way MIT does it is you take a core curriculum and then you kind of branch out and you study whatever you need to study for, to get after your technology that you're writing about. And so I had like a... I could just do anything pretty much uh, if I chose Bitcoin, which is what I chose at the very beginning. Um, I could dive into any field of science I needed to to build the grounded theory from first principles up. So I ended up learning a lot about anthropology, biology, psychology. Like, as you know, the Bitcoin rabbit hole is like, you know, can go into a lot of different areas of research and science and so I ended up just kind of dabbling in everything. Well you can also take it where you want. That's one of the interesting things about Bitcoin because it's this like emergent thing. Yeah. Like if you've got an idea or a thesis you can take it wherever you want. I mean that's what I was chatting to Danny about last night and this morning when we were prepping for this interview because me and Danny went back and forth at each other a little bit about this Um, and what I was saying is essentially what you're doing is another thesis to be proven right or wrong. Yes you're behind it you fully support it but that's the great thing about Bitcoin. You can come up with a thesis and you know take that take that thesis for a ride and see where it takes you. Yeah, and you see so many different people with so many different backgrounds taking their expertise to this technology and giving everyone a new perspective. So me, the military guy, the the Space Force astronautical engineer whose job it is to design weapon systems to fight in a new domain, I see Bitcoin and I'm like, okay, I've got some thoughts about this. Um, maybe those thoughts could be useful. And so, yeah, it, it, I think Bitcoin can be a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And I tried to just make the case that, that it could be something even more than money if you zoomed out a little bit. Okay. I, I, when we get into it, there's going to be stuff that I agree with you, stuff that I disagree with you. But I think it's all going to come back to the same place where I think the kind of output at the end, I think we'll have a, a lot of agreement. Um, but I do. Can we can we cover the biology stuff? Sure. The, the, you know, just do you remember what you talked to me about that night? I remember not not really well because I remember you and Greg Foss were buying a lot of rounds that night. We drank a lot of wine, and I remember the restaurant being really pissed at us because we like held them for like an hour or something. Like they were yeah. so pissed, dude. They got paid. Yeah, yeah, I know. So, uh, but I remember we started talking about like we were eating steak. Yeah, wasn't I talking about hunting and, and? Yeah, but you went into organisms. You went into the 
like the evolution okay. of organisms yeah. and how they then became territorial. I can't remember exactly yeah. everything. I just remember calling Danny and saying, look, I don't know about this Jason guy, but he's fucking interesting. Thanks. Yeah, okay. So that ended up blossoming into what we now have as like chapter three of the of the software thesis. Mm-hmm. So the, the way I open up, um, so the thesis or the book is called Soft War. So I frame... Bitcoin as the evolution of warfare into like a new domain or just a new paradigm of war fighting, of physical conflict between human beings. But to 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 like grease the skids for that conversation, I don't frame it as like a human thing. I frame it as like a evolutionary scale thing. And and I I basically try to explain the phenomenon we call warfare through what we can empirically observe in nature. That way no one can disagree with me because like, you can look outside and validate for yourself, this is how nature works. If I can build the case that like animals fight each other for territory, for control over resources, for ownership over resources, you can't really argue with that. Uh, and then I can now you know, create like this base layer understanding of how property ownership works and how security works. And we can say, okay, now humans just do the same thing animals do. So that conversation, if I remember correctly, was me telling you about like, if you look at the, the animal kingdom, if you look at nature, if you, if you go back all the way to 4 billion years ago and you study how nature claims ownership of things, you'll note that there is a very, like, very strong link between ownership of property and projecting power or fighting other animals for ownership of that property or for control over that property or that resource of, of any kind. So starting with single-celled bacteria, you've got nutrient-rich volumes of water around thermohydro vents, a lot of resources in those. So how do you make sure that you have uh, control over that volume of space that has all the resources you need? Well, it's a bloodbath. It's a, it's a it's a gigantic fight between all kinds of single-celled organisms constantly battling each other for control over that resource. And you can, you can frame every major or like many major evolutions as improvements in this power projection slash fighting game of organisms competing each o- against each other, projecting power against each other to secure their access to some underlying resource. So uh, two billion years ago, single-celled organisms figured out how to cooperate together. Once they figured out how to cooperate with each other, the cooperating organisms were able to wreak havoc on all the single-celled organisms, capture more territory, capture more resources, and then that blossoms over this two-billion-year following evolution of all sorts of animals with all sorts of power projection capabilities. They started growing eyeballs so they could target their prey. They started growing teeth. They started growing fangs. They started growing, um, you know, pointy claws. They started getting bigger, stronger, all for the sake of making sure they could achieve and preserve control over the resources they value by not by engaging in diplomacy or shaking hands or coming to some agreement because they they didn't understand how to do that. Uh, by fighting over it, by by imposing a severe physical cost or some. Pr- prohibitive physical costs on my, um, my competitor from having access to the resources that I need. So 
the world became a very competitive, congested, contested, hostile environment over limited resources. And the way animals achieve control over those limited resources is by engaging in this global scale physical power competition, which we call outside, just nature. If you go out and you look outside, it's brutal. Nature's metal. They don't, um, they have established what it takes to succeed and survive in a zero trust, permissionless and egalitarian way. Zebras and lions don't trust each other. They're not asking each other for permission. They're projecting power. They're taking their territory. They're defending their territory with power. And so, so is projection of power and conflict, is that an intrinsic part of evolution in that there is a need to consume to reproduce? It seems so. It would seem that the universe isn't really welcoming to life. You have very scarce, limited resources on Earth, at least you know, in the cosmic scale. And so it seems like a key part of, of to live for all n- nature is to compete each other against each other for access to these underlying scarce resources. And what we see in nature is what has survived this rigorous natural selection bloodbath for billions of years. And so we look outside and we see, um, uh, you know, we see like a falcon. That thing... That thing has survived a long and brutal process to, to, to remain a falcon and to continue spreading its genes. And an interesting complex emergent effect of this evolutionary process where life gets increasingly better at competing against each other is that life also gets increasingly better at surviving the hostile nature of the universe. So uh, in, like the, in the book Software, I talk about... Um, I talk about the ecological arms race between what became mammals and what became birds. You had these uh, warm-blooded endothermic uh, creatures that popped up a couple hundred million years ago, and uh, they learned, you know, because they could metabolize their own food and go underground. I think we talked about this. Mm. They learned how to um, they learned how to basically go underground and heat themselves and eat stuff underground so they could avoid the you know the terrestrial layer of predators and dinosaurs that would eat them well if if this major group of what became like they're like weasel looking things if they go underground then what about all the um, dinosaurs that that hunt those right oh crap now your major food source is, is out so you have to now be endothermic you have to learn how to be warm blooded so that you can continue to hunt your prey who's warm-blooded. And so you'll see this in nature happen a lot over, over time is you get into these evolutionary races. Okay, you got warm-blood, I got warm-blood. You got eyeballs, I got to have eyeballs. You got camouflage, I got to have camouflage. You got scales, I, got, I need to have them. And in this uh, ecological arms race that happened between the shrew-like things and the, the reptile-like things that were their main predator, you, you blossom into mammals and birds which they're faster, they were smarter, they were more maneuverable, and they were warm-blooded. And you're like, okay, what, what's the big deal? Well, that becomes a huge advantage when the meteor hits and wipes out 80% or more of life on Earth. These, these um, animals that were trapped in this, in this ecological arm race that were trying to outcompete each other, 
the prey and the, and the predators, they were the ones that were most capable of surviving that chaos. When the sun goes out, suddenly you don't have a way to heat, heat your body anymore. So endothermy is actually a really good advantage. If you can metabolize your own food and heat, warm your blood, and you don't need the sunlight to do it. That's super good when there's so much debris in the atmosphere when the meteor hits that the sun is blotted out from the sky for two years. So most things freeze to death, starve to death, but these things we now call birds and mammals uh, survive. And, and you see that over and over and over again. For In the book, I also talk about um, when, uh, when photosynthesis first evolved. They figured out how to basically eat uh, light and poop out oxygen, these like uh, single-celled bacteria. Well, oxygen is highly flammable. So an easy way to tell like if, if life, if there's life on a exoplanet is to look for oxygen um, or to look for fire. There's, there's not enough oxygen on planets to, to, to catch fire, except for like Earth, where there's so many living biological organisms that are pooping oxygen, that there's so much oxygen. So, but two billion years ago, these, this new evolutionary process where people can do photosynthesis or cells can do photosynthesis and poop out oxygen means you basically cover the entire planet with super flammable gas and it, it set the whole planet on fire. So like one of the first major extinction events of life on earth was the great oxidation event where like basically life was just this like, like burning soup in the oceans. Okay, well, how do you escape that? How do you like overcome that chaos? Well, it is believed that uh, multicellular cooperation, or in this case, um, basically cells learning to grow tendrils and like capture other cells and then form this like symbiotic multicellular thing that could then harden their cellular wall so that you can survive against fire. It is believed that um, that's how we over or that's how life overcame the great oxidation event, all this napalm that's burning everyone and killing everyone is multicellular cooperation. So the point of all this is that these evolutions over 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 the time span of life, um, they help us not only project power against each other, control resources, control territory, but also to countervail the chaos of the universe, otherwise known as entropy. Okay, and so when you talk about the projection of force, is, is, can that be offensive and defensive? Yes. Because force feels ag- offensive, right? When you talk about force, it feels like an, ag- an aggressive action. Yeah, so especially in the Space Force, we're, it's hard to distinguish between what constitutes offense and what constitutes defense. Because, say, for example, China rushes or China launches a... Um, like a hypersonic nuclear-tipped missile into orbit around the moon, into a parking orbit around the moon. Is that an offensive action or a defensive action? Okay, so say yeah. we, don't, we don't like it up at the, at the moon, and we shoot it down. So we launch our own you know, ASAT thing to go into cislunar orbit to blow up that nuclear-tipped thing in a parking orbit around the moon. Is that offensive? Is that defensive? And I, 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 yeah, I see what you're saying because you, you can argue that launching this nuclear tip missile around the moon is a defensive action. That's what China will say. But, but it, it, to me, it feels like an offensive action because so, it's putting something out there yeah. aggressively. So, 
What was Putin's justification for invading Ukraine? Did he call it offense or defense? Well, it depends on who you speak to and what their interpretation is of that. Yeah. And I've read a lot of the different interpretations. It, I think it's an offensive move. It gets So the the point is the difference between offense and defense is the ideology of the observer, not there's no yeah. real technical difference. Yeah, it's relative to the observer. So so from, you know, the engineer technical guy uh, at least in the, so the United States borrows most of its military doctrine from when Napoleon kicked a bunch of ass in Europe, because that was when we were still fledgling nation trying to grow. Uh, the, the French were dominant in the late 1700s and the early 1800s. So we borrow a lot of our military doctrine, mo- you know, so-called modern military doctrine from, uh, the French early 1800s French. And um, th- in that world, the, the thing that made France revolutionary was their new paradigm of not offense and defense strictly, but what we now call maneuver warfare. So it, the, the Napoleon was like, stop focusing too much on you know, building defenses or building good offense. Focus your military, if you want to dominate, on maneuverability. And your role is to maneuver your military to where it's most advantage. It, it has the best advantage. So, like, you want to move your military so that it can take the fight it's guaranteed to win. And whether that's, quote, unquote, offense or defense, whatever that looks like, it doesn't really matter. It's position your military to take the fight that you can know you win. And depending on the technology at the time, the pendulum swings. Sometimes the offensive has the advantage. Sometimes the the so-called defensive has the advantage. And then also people get confused or make distinctions between passive power projection and active power projection. So a good example of passive power projection is what the, um, is uh, colonization. This dates back two billion years. If you've got precious territory and you, you're a bunch of single-celled organisms and you just capture that territory, just focusing on yourself, okay, you've colonized that territory. What happens if anyone else wants that territory? Okay, you colonized it, so you got there first, but does that mean that, so if you like fight off people that get there after you, are you defending? Are you off? Offending, mm, yeah. the, the, it gets to the point where you always have to ask this question: How did you come to own the land you're defending? And you zoom back, you probably took it, yeah, by force. You just, you just. Well, no, not always true. I mean, if, if you're talking at a nation state level, yes. But if you're talking at an individual level, like the land I own, I bought from somebody who sold it to me. Now, but if you go back to the history of time, right. There, there will have probably been a time that it was taken from somebody, perhaps. There was a time where that this plot of land, wherever you live, belonged to animals and nature. And then humans came in and says, this is mine now. And then yeah. there was a series of fights and over thousands of years. And now you're saying, this is yours now. This is mine now. But you trace that back. In basically all cases, humans took it from something or somebody. If you took it from the the nature, no one really cares. But if you took it from another human, then you're you know people will have res- beef up against that. They'll be mad about that for some reason. So like, I always try to just 
avoid the discussion of making a distinction between offense and defense and just focus on either active or passive power projection. So another example of passive power projection is a wall or a barbed wire fence. Okay. A barbed wire fence will harm anyone who tries to cross it. If you just you just set up a beachhead somewhere and just pull your ships up and just cordon everything off and put up a bunch of barbed wire fence, that's a power projection play. And if you grow and you steadily like branch out and you're just continuing to build walls and walls, you are invading a country, but you're doing it passively. You're not shooting a bullet or swinging a blade perhaps, but you're still projecting power. It, it hurts to punch a wall. So there's active power projection and passive power projection. There's swinging the blade and actually cutting somebody, or there's phalanx formation, shields only, but then going in and invading or taking over, taking that territory. So a wall around my house is a passive power projection. Yeah, or a cellular membrane that that cells figured out how to do four billion years ago. That's, you are you are passively capturing the volume of space. With force. I, I still don't see the force element. If I buy a plot of land, it may have historically been taken through force at a previous point, but if I you know, bought this from another owner, rightfully, legally, and I put up a wall, I still don't understand how that's a passive projection of power. There's, there's the physical part, and there's the part where the people you bought it from were tied to some military that captured that land. So like if you just literally put up a wall or if I just block the door. So in America, if you block someone's exit, that is, it's either assault or battery. I think it's assault. It qualifies as assault. You block someone's path, that is assault. You just sit there and you don't move and you can't get around them. You are, or um, you like, you know, block a a port. Okay. That is a, a force projection thing. It's, it's passive, though. Every action has an equal opposite reaction. You're not actually applying any force until you get hit by someone or someone swings something at you. But if you punch a wall, that will hurt you. There is force in that. Of course, but, but why would someone walk up to my house and punch the wall? And if they do, that's on them. I still don't see... I can see how you can make the claim that of land that's been taken historically at some war at some point. But once we've evolved to a point and a nation's been established and yeah, at some point land will have passed through multiple people legally and you know, through the structures of the courts and um, you know, willing participants in the trade, I, again, not to be difficult, but I still don't no, see this is good. how that's a projection. Let's say you're Native Americans living in Florida and one day you go check out this place that you and your ancestors have been visiting for multiple generations. Yeah. And this, this a-hole, Admiral Columbus, has landed on the beach and built a fortress. Okay? Yeah. That's why you would want to go punch the wall. Yeah, but that, that's a different scenario. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to compare like for like. In that scenario, yes, because he's the invader. He's taking the land yeah. through force and he's putting up a wall to a land that's previously theirs. But nobody has a claim to this land now. It is known in my country that piece of land is owned by John. John sold it to me and that's yeah. now Peter's. So why is my wall in that scenario forced? That that piece of land belongs to the United... Or at least let's use it America. My piece of land belongs 
to America. And then I lease it from America and I pay a tax or a, a fee. And that fee goes to people like me who will project a lot of power to, against anyone who tries to take that plot of land from America. This show is brought to you by Wasabi, who I am using to keep my Bitcoin private. Now, Wasabi is the easiest way to send and receive Bitcoin privately. And even for non-technical people like me, it is effortless and provides privacy by default. Now, with Wasabi, there is no minimum amount, so you can get started coin joining straight away. And Wasabi users make coin join transactions together with BTC Pay and Trezor users, and BTC Pay server users can make payments in CoinJoin, which saves on fees and is a privacy improvement. Also, Wasabi have just dropped a new feature. Now, Trezor Suite users can make coin joins directly on the hardware wallet, which is obviously very cool. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W A S A B I W A L L E T.io. Also, today we have BitCasino. Now, BitCasino was established in 2013 and is the world's first licensed Bitcoin casino. It is trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide. And not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they offer fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. BitCasino also has over 2,800 games and tournaments to try out. And with 24-7 live chat support, you can always get the help you need. To find out more, please head over to bitcasino.io, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award. That is bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Also, today, we have Unchained Now. If you've been listening to my show for a while, you'll know I'm a big fan of saving Bitcoin for the long term. I'm a hodler, which is why I'm happy to recommend the Unchained IRA. Their Bitcoin IRA lets you control the keys to your tax-advantaged Bitcoin, and if you have a Roth IRA, that means you don't pay capital gains on the price appreciation. Now, unfortunately, most IRA providers require that you give up control of your Bitcoin, but not with Unchained. Controlling your keys with the Unchained IRA protects you from exchange hacks or frozen accounts, and Unchained is an all-in-one solution. They'll help you establish a traditional or Roth IRA, set up your cold storage vault, roll over your existing 401k or IRA, and if you want one-on-one guidance, their concierge team will send you devices and walk you through setting up and securing your keys at your own pace. If you want to set up your IRA today, head over to unchained.com forward slash what Bitcoin did or schedule a complimentary consultation to learn more. That is unchained.com forward slash what Bitcoin did, which is U-N-C-H-A-I-N-E-D dot com forward slash what Bitcoin did. And if you want to get $50 off, please use the promo code what Bitcoin did at the checkout. So you cannot, you're basically saying you cannot have a scenario where there is no projection of force. Look outside. Look at nature. Let's start, let's start there. Look at nature. Is there... Is how do you how do animals define what's owned? There's a piece of steak on the ground, they, a fresh kill on the savanna. Okay, the wolf comes, or let's say a wolf takes down a, like a rabbit or something. Okay, and I go up and I and I'm like that looks good, and I try to take it from the wolf. What is the wolf going to do? It's going to fight you. It's going to snarl. It's going to make mean, scary sounding noises. Okay. So it is projecting its capability to impose a severe physically prohibitive cost on me. It is projecting power against me. Mm-hmm. So that is how it signals that it own that that piece of meat belongs to that wolf. Okay. Okay, but here, here we go. What if I snarl back? I believe that meat belongs to me, so I snarl back at the wolf. 
that you're who, projecting power back. Who owns that piece of meat? I actually think in that scenario, neither owns it. At that moment, one wolf's got it, and the other one wants it. Yeah. Okay. So, so there's a there's a property dispute. Yeah. How do we adjudicate or settle that property dispute? Well, you either fight. Well, you 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 do the dance of snarling first and see if that scares off, and if it doesn't, then you start throwing throwing fists. Boom. So, whenever there's a property dispute, a wolf isn't capable of you know it isn't physiologically capable. It doesn't have the brain power to to try to like negotiate with me or engage in some diplomacy to come to come to some agreement over this thing. Most mm. animals can't do that. That is a uniquely human thing. So how animals handle who owns what and what their pecking order is. So if you have a pack of wolf, who gets the first drink of the water or who gets the first bite? Okay, they establish pecking order by fighting each other all the time. And then you do it interspecies and intraspecies. So between wolves and wolves talking to other humans who are competing simultaneously over a piece of of property or resource. So that's how it's done in nature. Okay, so that's we, fine. Okay. And, and we are essentially animals. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. So what what makes you know that question is what makes human beings different I mean, than animals? I, I just think it's consciousness, like self-aware. Exactly. That's and, pretty much just yeah, that's it. And therefore we have a higher level of intelligence. So we do have diplomacy. Yeah. So if and you we, tra- trace it back and you go back to between 50,000 years ago and like, I don't know, 300,000 <coughs> years ago. It's not really clear how old humans are, like anatomically modern humans. But what makes humans unique from other animals is very clear. We've got big ass prefrontal cortexes. Um, we can cook our food. We are far more intelligent. We have far more uh, theory of mind, co- self consciousness. Um, we have far more higher orders of intentionality. So we can think of and predict the intentions of other brains, other animals, other people. So that's what really makes, we're still animals, obviously. We're still mammals, obviously. We're, we're still in the same plane of, in the domain as nature, obviously. The difference is we can think of things. And so if I come across you and say, and we want to have a competition or, you know, there's maybe you ha- live on some plot of land and for whatever reason I believe that belongs to me or whatever the underlying resource is, we have the physiological capability to try to come to a mutual agreement. Okay, let's split the land or it's going to belong to me because I was here first. Okay, handshake. Okay, but when we come into that agreement, when we settle the dispute that way, we've, we've adopted a trust-based system I must trust that you will uphold your my counterparty will uphold their end of the agreement. Okay, I I am requiring you to permit me to to have access to this thing or to call it mine, and all you have to do is just break that trust or not be sympathetic to our belief system and our agreement. This is Ukraine. That's not Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then suddenly it breaks down. And so humans are unique in that we try our best to avoid that fight, but there's obviously always exceptions. Just read history. Not everyone can come to agreement on everything. There's going to be discrepancies in belief systems or ideologies. And, but worst of all, the, the main problem is um, if, you only, if you only try to agree to like, like a common belief system, you create an asymmetric advantage for the person to just take your thing. 
So what I mean is, this is like physical security 101. Um, let's say like we want to compete over this water bottle. All right. We come to an agreement, we shake hands, we sign a thing, we take pictures. Okay. What would be the, and now this water bottle becomes like worth a gajillion dollars. All right. The agreement hasn't changed. I have no capacity to physically constrain you or uh, physically harm you or impose any physically prohibitive costs. I'm not going to snarl at you. Why not just take the thing? Like, there's a certain dollar point where this could become so valuable that you will break that agreement. There's a huge advantage, a benefit to cost ratio of of just taking the thing. So another good example is you put a million dollars in a truck bed and park it in uh, Times Square with no one to, around. You just, just dump it in the middle of Times Square. That's mine. No one take it. Right? Would you feel bad if someone took that stuff? Or would you think I'm just being stupid? I mean, I think you I think you've put in a test out there, but I think you're being stupid. Right. And I expect some people to take it. Yeah. So if you if you learn irrigation and you create this freshly irrigated plot of land, okay then how do you defend that thing? Yeah, we can shake hands. We can you know, pull a Munich agreement and say, look, we, <laughs> we came to an agreement here. We're, we're fine, okay? But like, how hungry are you? How valuable is that land, right? If I do not impose a cost or if I do not posture myself to impose a cost on you if you try to take that thing, then we're relying exclusively on trust. I just must necessarily trust you. So it's a trust-based system. Trust is systemically insecure, you will take that thing if it's valuable enough and there is no cost for you to do so. Not necessarily. Some people just wouldn't. Not everyone would just take just because they could. Yeah, that's fair. You know, yeah. we, That's another thing we innately have as humans that I don't, I don't think animals have. They see the meat, they want the meat. Yeah. They'll take the meat. Yeah. They see the things. But like, you know, we have, uh, we have a moral code that maybe some of us observe differently, you know, D- Danny, Danny would probably take the money. I, I wouldn't. Right. But, but there's also, like in our society, there's recourse, right? If you take something that's not yours. So like, does that not change the behavioral pattern of it? Yeah, that recourse is, I'll throw you in prison. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll impose a physically prohibitive cost on you. Mm-hmm. So in this thing that we call enforcement is people introducing force, projecting power, introducing force into the equation. To, to tilt the balance, the, basically to make the return on investment of attacking me or taking my thing, not so good. Yeah. This is also fundamental to um, deterrence. Okay, like for example, there's nothing stopping another nuclear power from launching missiles and doing a first strike against the, for example, the United States. Okay, like. If they wanted to, they could probably pull that off, mm-hmm. right? Just physically, it's, yeah. it would. You know, they they launch a good like a hundred missiles, each one with five warheads on each missile. Like our missile defense systems are are designed to counter like little threats like North Korea, not a Russian Chinese coordinated nuclear attack on the United States. Okay, so what do we do? Right, like if we got silos everywhere, we got we got runways. They could just blow up the silos and runways, and we've where our nukes are, if they strike first, so what do we do? Well, we 
We, that's why we have submarines. That's the whole entire purpose of nuclear submarines, U.S. nuclear submarines. Now we're negotiating with Australia on that. The whole point of that is you park a submarine underwater, and then those things wait. And if anyone tries to strike us first, and they take out our missile silos, and they take out our runways, we can't stop that, but we can shoot back. We can have second strike. So it's that, that, it's that the deterrence is that understanding that if you shoot, you're going to get shot back. Yeah, deterrence is, and, and one of the most effective forms of security is if you hold a knife to my throat, I'll hold one back. And, and so don't do it. Like You want to make the benefit-to-cost ratio of attacking you as low as possible. And you do that by saying that we are very willing and capable and to strike back. And that's why, at least for nuclear wars, uh, for uh, nuclear deterrence, we use submarines. They're, they're key to that. But it applies to everything. Okay, the wolf snarling at you is trying to deter you. If you try to take this thing, I will bite you. Hmm. Okay, that is how security works in nature. And it also is how security works in human civilization because you may be trustworthy and because you're so trustworthy and you've demonstrated that when we have such a history of this then yeah okay i'll come to agreement with you and we'll just agree and i'll trust you but i'm like there's a lot more than just you that i have to worry about this world is filled with a lot of predators and human beings are the peak predator so interestingly i never knew that about submarines no i'd never heard it very much it makes total no, sense though. yeah it makes total sense i just thought submarines were just Another part of the navy, hidden, yeah, able to take out ships. Yeah, the the big ones, those big ones, the black ones that yeah. have nuclear missiles on them, Trident nuclear missiles. Yeah. Um, they exist to shoot back if that ever happened. What is the role of tactical nuclear weapons, which I've heard about? Then is that because? They've talked you know, with the Ukraine-Russia conflict that there's a risk that the Russia might use a, a tactical nuclear weapon, which to me implies it's a much smaller nuclear weapon, not as widespread damage, but still can cause a lot of damage in a small area. Is that almost like, a, oh, we can use this one, it doesn't start World War Three? Yeah, and, and if you look back like in the 60s, they were like, they were like nuclear bazookas, <laughs> like, like human-launched, just over the shoulder, nuke on the end. Like you can make them small. The advantage of nukes is they're a highly efficient form of power projection. Yeah. So if, if uh, this gets back to like the evolution, right? So um, animals evolve increasingly more powerful ways to project power. So they just they get stronger, basically, and bigger. So you can pack more punch, literally. Or uh, they get more efficient at power projection. So, in, you know, they get pointy teeth. So for the same amount of force, you can puncture and cause a lot more damage to the skin if you have pointy teeth than if you have blunt teeth. Uh, so, and they're, they're just very efficient. They come up with all sorts of clever ways to, to play this game. Well, humans do the same thing. Humans are very resourceful. We figured out how to wield fire. That's a very efficient power projection technique because we don't have to burn our own watts, our own food to, to cause that damage. We use an exogenous supply. So we just, if we got a problem with these predators in the jungle, we just burn down the jungle. In terms of the amount of power that we're using and producing ourselves, that's an extremely efficient power projection technique. Um, you know, and swinging blades back in the old days, those are increasingly more powerful, increasingly more um, efficient power projection techniques, trebuchets, catapults. You, you go through time, 
We discover gunpowder. That's a super efficient way of projecting power. A lot of power. You get cannons. You get everyone just, it doesn't matter how big you are if I got a pistol. Okay, your, your skull is just as vulnerable to a bullet as my skull, no matter how big your muscles are. Okay, I've got a very um, efficient and increasingly more powerful way of, of defending my property or engaging in this natural process that is the chaos and war of all animals. And nukes represents the, the, basically the end of the line. Uh, we got so efficient in terms of size, weight, and power required to project that much power. Like if you've, I don't know if you've ever seen like a an actual nuke. What well, like seen one of the missiles? Yeah, I can't think that I have. I mean, I've seen them on TV and in films. And have you seen like how big they are compared to them? Like we could fit. I, I don't know. On this table, we could fit multiple nukes to destroy multiple cities. Wow. Okay. So they're they're small, right? Uh, you can you can pack a lot of punch. So in terms of power projection technology in this game of of, of security, physical security, of imposing costs on people because you can't trust them or you don't want to. Uh, humans have become so efficient at power projection technology that they, ironically, they're too inefficient to use. Right. That's the issue is you actually cause too much damage. The whole point of settling this property dispute is to, is to win. One side wins. If we kill each other in the process, that's an ineffective power projection technology. But there's a significant argument, and it's one I really hate even trying to have an opinion on, but there's a really strong argument that uh, Nagasaki and Hiroshima ended World War II, and people have made, I've seen seen people make the argument that it saved lives because it ended the war. It brought Japan to the table to, to end the war, and if they hadn't, the war could have carried on, and you could have seen millions more dead. And what was it? How many died? Was it like 200,000 in each city or something? Uh, I think the first one was like 80. Was it? 80,000. 80,000. But either way, I mean, like, hugely devastating, horrific. Yep. But the argument was it brought Japan to the table to... Yeah. I actually, so, at Pearl Harbor, I've actually been on the ship where they signed the the, um, the peace, well, the, no, the surrender. Yeah. Um, How many people died in the firebombing of Tokyo right before I've Hiroshima? I've yeah, no one knows. Do you know? I don't remember, but it's it's comparable. It's like a hundred thousand. It's on the same order of nuclear. Yeah. So uh, you know, during World War II, the it's more three hundred thousand. Yeah. So wow. substantially more people died from traditional weapons than the bombing. But no one talks about the traditional bombings that we were doing. And it injured they, another four hundred thousand. Yeah. Yeah, I just think it was. Because it's it feels so horrific and scary, and uh, and it was just it's just massive widespread so, damage and destruction and death. If you're in Tokyo and you've already seen so like just who know, hundreds of bombers come and firebombing this thing, okay, yeah. and then one day one plane, one bomb does that much damage. I mean, you know the game's over. It's done. Yeah. So after Hiroshima, we started bombing them with leaflets saying, look what we just did to you. S- convince your emperor to do an honorable surrender. It would be honorable for you to, because we have built this thing and like we'll just keep building them until you surrender. And, and so like two months after the first Trinity test, not the first you know, Hiroshima or Nagasaki, the war is suddenly over. 
We've been carpet bombing them, bombing Tokyo. We've been doing all this stuff. 300,000 people dying on a single night. They weren't surrendering. But one bomb, 80,000 people, okay, they've clearly got something that we've never seen before. And I'm super excited about uh, actually Oppenheimer coming out in like in a month or two. So they're going yeah. dis- to gonna. Have you seen the trailer this. for this? No, I didn't. I've not yeah. heard of it. Yeah, it's, 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 we'll watch it afterwards. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if Japan had invented the nuclear bomb first, how the course of history might have changed. How, how what if Germany, who was also trying, trying to build, yeah. who had already had V2 rockets, so yeah. they, had, they were just V2ing the crap out of the UK, so they could already deliver you know, these warheads really effectively with rockets, what became intercontinental ballistic missiles. It was all Germany. They already had jets a good five, ten years before we had jets. Um, you know, when we were flying around in our P-51s or our, in your case, the, the Spitfires, Spitfires, thinking we're badasses, they're flying around, you know, in Messerschmitt 262s, operational Messerschmitt 262s, jet aircraft. And they were racing towards it, and they probably, you know, the estimate is they we were about 18 months ahead of them in getting the bomb. Did the U.S. have Germans working on their nuclear program? I kind of feel like I knew that. Well, we had basically scientists from all the, around the world. Yeah. To include Germany in Los Alamos. We yeah. like created a city and said, we have to build this thing as fast as possible. But this illustrates, again, shelling points. If a new power projection technology emerges that tips the scales in this game that we play, yeah. then that becomes a shelling point. If you want to continue being able to secure your resources, you have to, you have to be able to to fight back in an effective way. So like if you're a blind organism and I just evolved eyeballs, now I have a targeting system. Okay, how's a blind organism going to do against a, a you know, mm. an or a predator with eyeballs? So you've got to get eyeballs too. And until you get eyeballs, you cannot expect to survive effectively. And so once again, the ecological arms race or the human arms race. Everything we're constantly evolving um, new technologies, that's how humans do it. We don't like actually evolve. Um, but we, we create new technologies, which is an evolution of itself. And so you, you, mu- you have no option. Like there, um, I talk in, the, in Soft War about how um, in 1939, um, Einstein sends the note to the president, says, hey, we think we can build a bomb. What people don't talk about is like six years before that, Einstein also declared that in his lifetime he wouldn't expect nuclear energy to be possible. And he also spent all those years openly condemning, um, you know, like he was a super famous pacifist, like war is not the answer, we can't do war. And so when he goes to the president in 1939 and says, we can build it and we should, that was a huge pivot. Okay, so the people at the time knew it. If you don't build this thing, they will. Yes. And and so that becomes the key point, a key point in soft war is you have to be on par with your predators because you're in a competitive, congested, contested, hostile environment. If they're building it, you got to build it. That's why we have a space force now. If they're building it, we got to build it. Yeah, t- just... Just tell me about the Space Force stuff as well. Look, I know you've told me about it before, but just for the listeners, just because it just sounds fucking cool, wild but cool to be involved in working on this. Um, let's go back t- 10,000 years. We've already talked about freshly irrigated land. Yep. Let's go back even longer. I have no idea how old uh, 
bees are, but they're probably millions, maybe hundreds of millions of years old. Bees produce honey. This is a, a resource that everybody loves. Yeah. I don't know if you love honey. I, I love, love honey. honey. Okay. So how do you prevent people from attacking your honey? You get a sting. You get a stinger. Isn't that interesting? You get, a little, you get a little weapon. You get a little weapon out your ass. Yeah. And if anyone tries to take the hive's honey, you sink that thing into their skin. You do it so deep that if you try to like leave, you'll disembowel, you'll disembowel yourself and die. So honey bees die every time they sing stump. Yeah, something. they're like um, suicide bombers. Yeah, they're little suicide bombers. Okay, so they nature proves, again, we have to filter out the survivorship bias. Everything that has survived this long has proven itself to be capable of surviving and passing a rigorous natural se- selection process. Nature proves that the solution to the honeypot security problem is to sting your attacker, not for self-defense, for systemic defense. You cause pain, you cause harm, you physically constrain, you impose physically prohibitive costs on your attacker, and that's how you're going to keep your honey secure because you're going to think twice before you just reach in there and take something. That cost it makes you think twice. The return on investment of just taking the honey is not quite as high, if you're, especially if like you're allergic to the venom in the stinger. Okay, so if you have a irrigated land, how do you defend it? You can have guards, walls. So stingers, right? Another yeah. word for a guard is a stinger. Yeah. Right? That guard is holding a sword. Um, the UK was, you know, they did this really well. Yeah, we built castles. Yeah. And yeah, you have castles. So a passive, you have active and passive power projection capabilities. But a lot of those farms were still outside of the castle. Like they couldn't put it around. Yeah. Um, so you have to have the knights that go out there and sting anyone that tries to take the freshly irrigated land. Okay, that's how you defend land. Well, now let's say we figure out how to uh, do ships and we're sailing across the Mediterranean where we've got these goods, like very valuable honey, passing across the Mediterranean. How do you keep the, that, those goods secure as you go across the sea? You got ships with stingers. You get ships with stingers on them, right? Yep. Okay. okay. So that's how you physically secure a resource. Okay. Let's say um, 19, early 1900s, we figure out airplanes. Mr. Falk. Yeah, yeah, thank you. So uh, I used to say, don't fuck this don't up. Don't fuck this up. Yeah. yeah, that was the final tweet on yeah. the thread. Yeah. But uh, someone corrected me. It was like, actually, his name is pronounced Foch. And I was like, damn it. I would have said Foch off, you twat. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the, there's a couple points to that. You, you've, it, we're, we're, what we're, I'm saying is, as humans uh, expand into different domains and yeah. generate goods. I know. Honey, I, look, I see where this is going. Okay. But that's making me think have we got stingers up there now? Um, the, the China, we have to prepare for that future is the point. Okay. So a different question is, is that I'm going to imagine if I was China and I wanted some weapons up there, I might disguise them as a satellite. Yeah. You might disguise them as a re- uh, research experiment with a robotic arm on it. Yeah. And you might say, I'm not, I'm not, this isn't a stinger. I'm just testing how to repair robots. Yeah, and, and if satellites. war was to break out, one of the most useful first things you could do is take out other people's satellites. Your phone, your GPS, your precision yeah. timing of all your networks, um, every com- uh, geographic combatant command, how they talk, they're all talking through the satellites. So um, that's the weak spot. That's the honey. Okay, if you want to just completely 
nerf everything that we've built. Okay, and you know, an uh, aircraft carrier, everything f- from that to a Ford operating base, everything from your ability to get to that target on time at the same time as your friends, all depends on space. We use space, we touch space dozens of times per day. We just don't think about it because we can't see it. Mm-hmm. So that's the honey. So sting that. So when, just a complete side point, when NASA or Elon Musk send a rocket up, do they have to know where all the satellites are to avoid them? Mm-hmm. It's not by chance they go, right, let's send it now, let's hope we don't hit one of these. Yeah, we have an entire squadron in the Space Force that yeah. is dedicated to tracking all the crap in space. And they send that information to us at the launch range to make sure that when we're launching rockets that we don't run into stuff. And they also constantly send notifications to other countries to tell them, hey, you need to maneuver your satellite because you're on what we call conjunction path. It's like air traffic control. Yep, air traffic control, but for space. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, so if I was the U.S. without being able to look inside these research satellites or whatever, I'm going to make the assumption now that China and Russia has put weapons in space. China overtly declared their own space force years ago. Of course. Okay, so it gets back into the, the th- you know what we talked about before. If you got a new power projection technology, if nations are clearly posturing themselves, then your only option is to sting back. You have to completely change how you do everything. And so that's why we're like, okay, well, if space is going to be a place where um, you know, people duke it out like BattleBot style, but in orbit, you know, Star Wars style. Then the first thing we have to do is formally declare space a combatant command, which we did. I was part of the team that stood up, helped stood up uh, U.S. Space Command, so a formal combatant command for space. And then you also have to have a service to organize, train, and equip forces to present to that combatant commander, which is why we need a space force. You have to have a dedicated service whose sole job is to predict that future. What's that going to look like? How do we build stingers in orbit? Or if, you know, do we even need stingers in orbit? Like maybe, you know, if you want to take out that satellite, you just take out the ground station. What are the what are the command authorities? What are the technologies you need to use? It's a it's a it's such a new and interesting problem set that you have to raise an entire new military service. But it it makes perfect sense because when we figured out how to go into the sea, we had navy, when we figured out how to go in the air, we had air force. When we figured out how do we go into space and we're passing goods and services across space, it makes sense that we would need a space force. No, it, it totally makes sense. Um, uh, and you are allowed to openly just talk about this, or are there restrictions on what you can talk about? I mean, there's obviously restrictions, yeah. but but you know, in 2014, this was a taboo topic. Yeah, and there's just stuff we couldn't say. But are there now weapons in space? So. You know, we formally declare GPS a weapon system. Are there uh, weapons in space that can fire and shoot shit? Do you consider like a a Chinese robot satellite with a robot arm that can that can go and grab another satellite, grab another satellite and pull a pull a? Do you call that a weapon? It. yeah, but I'm. I'm like, I know what I'm asking. You know what I'm asking. Are, are there like missiles in space now? Do we th- do we know? Can we think? Can you not even answer? I mean, if I did know, I wouldn't be able to answer. Yeah, it. I would. I Ho- thought so. Hopefully, we would never see anything like that because that would be uh, a war without winners. If you have debris in space, you get 
the Kessler effect, you get just a bunch of, like one, if you blow up a satellite, that's bad. That's happened a couple times. You get so much debris, all those particles that can run into each other, that's a chain reaction. You can pretty much destroy people's access to orbit if you do uh, stuff. But we now have an actual, like what I can say is we got Delta 9, Space Force Delta 9. Orbital warfare. And is there diplomacy about how you have a Space Force, we have a Space Force, let's talk, let's agree some rules. Yeah, so that is actually a big talking point right now with our leadership is what, what they the words they use is we have to establish norms of behavior in space. Mm. What that really means is when um, China, you know, launches a, a a crappy satellite with a big balloon on it and in sixty thousand feet. It's a satellite, but it has needs some help. It's got a big balloon on the top, and it can only get up to sixty thousand feet. And if that goes over the United States. People freak out because we have norm. We've have established norms and behavior. You don't put that crap over me, okay? So people freak out. Yeah. Okay. Um, China buzzes past a tanker in the air, like flies a J twenty just right across something. We see that on the news instantly because that is because of the norms of behavior that we've established for air. That's considered an aggressive action. Um, you're on the. You're a boat. Let's say you're a ship. And then China just drives its destroyer right off your bow and it's pointing guns and just flicking you off. Okay, we have norms of behavior to say that's an aggressive action. Don't do that. And if you do it again, I'm going to shoot back. Yeah. Or shoot first. Um, that does not exist for space. What if China launches something that flies a very tight orbit, a rendezvous proximity operation around a high, vas- a high value asset of ours, or visits all these other things? With their, you know, with yeah. all this other con- so this research satellites, yeah, yeah. we don't have norms of behavior but to say that's an aggressive action, yeah. and no one can see it. So, like, if they could only see what's happening in Geo right now, it, you know, if they freaked out over a piece of crap balloon, imagine what people would think if we established the norms of behavior for orbit. And so, we actually need that first, so that we can say, okay, that's an aggressive action. Don't do that. If you do it again, you're going to get stung. So what is your role in Space Force? My role right now um, is to finish up my Air Force Fellowship and then, uh, or Department of the Air Force Fellowship, and then now I'm seated at, uh, at Cape Canaveral as the, the Chief Technology and Innovation Officer for the launch ranges. So we have a West Coast launch range, an East Coast launch range. They're launching a bunch of rockets. The rate at which we're launching a bunch of rockets is taking off because there's a new commercial space race happening right now. Mm-hmm. And so I exist to help our launch ranges have the technology, uh, the data, uh, just to bring in as much new technology to, to support the launch ranges as possible and to do it in a contested environment now. Because if we've got a Space Force, we can no longer assume that there ain't going to be something trying to stop a launch using force. Like mm-hmm. so, you know, our launch ranges are a pot of honey. That is a very nice, ripe, fat target of opportunity for a nefarious nation. And so how do we launch in a contested environment? These are the questions that we're starting to have to address. And what is your mandate with Bitcoin within Space Force? Is this like a private initiative? You just something you're interested in and writing about? Is it something that uh, you do within your work time. There's people at, within Space Force who are interested. Is there pushback? What's the whole? The way it works is when you're about halfway through your 20 year career as an officer, each military branch sends you to school. 
and ask you to write about or research some topic. Maybe it's policy, maybe it's new technology, and you're just kind of, uh, you're just kind of, uh, they use that to help make sure that we're reflecting and posturing ourselves in the future to be able to, to win, fight and win future conflicts. So you take all these officers with ten, a decades worth of experience, you have them write things, study things of interest to the military, and then you send them back into training or whatever. So it's a normal thing where all military branches, about 10 years or so, um, you go to school and you research things. For me, my job or, or my uh, you know, order was go to MIT and research uh, technologies, specifically the national strategic implications of emerging technologies. Did, there wasn't any, it didn't have to be any specific technology. Okay, and you just stumbled across Bitcoin. Like, yeah, ah. and so, so here, here's the question that I faced when I started uh, at MIT. It's, okay, we had irrigated land, we had army. We had goods traveling across the sea, we had navy. We had goods traveling across the air, we had air force. We have goods traveling across air, uh, the, the space or orbit, for the past five, seven years, I've been dealing with standing up, uh, you know, part of the initial cadre of officers supporting the stand-up of not only a combatant command dedicated to space, but also its own military branch dedicated to this thing. So what happens when civilization expands its footprint into cyberspace? What happens if we create a new resource in cyberspace called data? How do we secure zero-trust permissionless access to our data in cyberspace. Dude, it's the plebs. That's your army. So when I say that, I get in a lot of trouble Pleb on Twitter. Force. Yeah, when I say hash force, space, uh, like For, cyber force, when I equate what you know the plebs are doing to to a militia or a military, I get, I get yelled at. But what... You do know why, though. You know why they're yelling at you. I mean, there's a, I'm, there's so many different reasons. Well, you got you got to think of the birth of Bitcoin, yeah. the journey it's been on, the kind of people have adopted it, promoted yeah. the reason they've promoted it. You've come in essentially, you're with the enemy, yeah, uh, and they see you as the enemy, and they see you projecting Bitcoin as as war, yeah, violence, yeah. Which I know you've walked back a walk back a little bit, but you know, it's a it's a huge leap. Sometimes. Sometimes it's how you present it. Now, the way you have presented it has created a whole load of interest because you blew up. There's a lot of, you know, but sometimes you have to, you know, it's like when I say back in the UK, I have to be very careful how I explain things to people yeah. because uh, people think will think I'm a nutter if I yeah. just talk in a certain way. So I have to be very careful about how, how I explain things. I don't want yeah. them to think I'm Alex Jones. Yeah, right. So yeah. Uh, we talked about how American doc, military doctrine came from the French. Yeah. Um, the word, when, when military people, my culture of people, not the pleb culture, my culture of people, talk about words like weapon, war, or violence, we are not, that's not a bad thing. We don't, we don't equate that to like something extraordinarily bad. Uh, the French, when they were using that word in the, you know, again, in the early 1800s, were not using it the same as the English people do. Mm. English people use the word violence as basically a catch-all for all things awful. 
like everything bad that you could possibly do in, to another human, they put that under the catch-all word of violence. But like how the French were talking about that term in the early 1800s is violence means like a violent chemical reaction or a violent storm or a violent reaction of some kind. Violence in that world is to bring a bunch of force at something, not mm. for the sake of harming. That was added by the English but just the, basically force projection or a sudden amount of force very quickly. You, you can rationalize it enough. I I'm just telling you this is why it yeah, is. Yeah, well, so I understand. Yeah. But, but I'm not here to like make people, you know, like, I'm... Do you, I, I guess, do you care or not whether you have people on side or you just, is this your base reality? Yeah, like, agree or disagree, I don't give a fuck. Here it is. It, First, I'm I'm trying to build a first principles understanding. Or for me, I was trying to search for a first principles understanding of of Bitcoin. So we talked about nature, right? Yeah. And all these things killing and fight each other all the time. You would call that violence, mm-hmm. okay? You would call those weapons their teeth, their you know their claws. Those are weapons, right? Uh, you might call it warfare. When when humans do it, you call it warfare. You call it weapons. You call it violence. Now let's expand this entire paradigm of people physically securing their resources, imposing physically prohibitive costs on each other, physically you know, constraining each other in, from, through every single domain, all four domains, all mass-based three-dimensional domains. What would you call it? What would you call it if you expand that same phenomenon into cyberspace where people secure their data, secure the control or decentralized control over their data using brute force power, which is what hashing represents. Yes, yeah, so I think, I think that we're going to get into the area where we may disagree or I may have to push back on, because we talked earlier about humans, why humans are different. We have, yep. you know, we're, we're conscious, you know, we talked about we have diplomacy. For me, consensus is diplomacy. And, Agreed. And therefore, I don't, I don't see it as an expression of force. I see it as a evolution of diplomacy. Yeah, so the best way to project a lot of power is to sum it together, is to cooperate. So like... Okay, so this isn't individual power, this is a project, This is a collective projection of power. Yeah, so organ, like you have pack animals and they stick together, right? They don't do their own thing, they stick together. And because you have a pack, you know... Uh, they're able to secure their resources better than if they're a lone wolf. In some, in, for the example of pack, okay, humans. What make you know one of the major anthropological theories about humans is our ability to come to consensus actually helps us overcome Dunbar's number, which was is a traditional cognitive limit of the amount of people that you can trust. There's only so many faces that you can remember and trust. And most animals have a physiological or cognitive limit to how many things they can cooperate with. But if we come to a same belief system, I don't have to know who you are. I just have to think that you believe the same thing you do or I do. Then suddenly we don't have to know or trust each other to cooperate mm-hmm. with each other. And then we can blow past Dunbar's number and cooperate with people that we have no cognitive capacity to trust or understand. And because we can do that, we can kill the Neanderthals because they can't figure that out yet. Or because we can do that, we can take down uh, you know, huge woolly mammoths or whatever. Yeah, so so I didn't think about this earlier, Danny, but in some ways, you know, 
I know you don't like the term war with the money. Definitely not in terms of Bitcoin. No, not I in terms kind of, of reject Bitcoin. that framing a little bit. But, but at the same time, Bitcoin is collectively, I think Bitcoin is basically the best form of money. Yeah. And we want it to succeed under threat of coercion and being crushed by the government. Mm-hmm. Uh, and therefore, it's been built up in a defensive way. So I, I, I can see how the collective hash power is, uh, you know, is a deterrent to to trying to try and you know to to fifty one percent attack it. Therefore, our hash power is a collective projection of force of the strength of Bitcoin by Bitcoiners. No. It, I don't see it as violent, and I'm not saying it's violent, but I see it as a projection of this is the power we've got, this is what you've got to come at. Yeah. I mean, I think it gets back to what you were saying earlier where a you're saying like a wall, a castle wall or a house wall or whatever is a passive form of, a passive force. And I, I, I still struggle with that. So if I, take, if I accept that as the idea, I totally agree with you. I just don't know if I accept that a wall is force. Okay. Let's let's talk about that. Let's delete the word war, weapon, violence from the conversation. That's why I constantly go back to power projection because hmm. we can have this conversation. That's why I talk about nature because we can agree that nature's fighting and projecting power against each other. We can agree that uh, to secure something, I have to sting you. Okay, the, or an effect, a better way of securing something than us shaking hands is being able and willing to sting you if if I need to. Well, I mean, our sting could be litigation. Yeah, that's an abstract yeah. form. But litigation, the problem with litigation is you're trying to adjudicate dispute and you have to hire a judge to, to determine that and who and you have to trust the judge, not to yeah, okay, be corrupt. Okay, okay. So that's still a trust-based system. Yeah. So the only, as far as I know, the only trustless, permissionless, zero trust way of securing a resource or establishing consensus on the legitimate state of ownership and chain of custody of a resource is to fight over it, is to project power against each other. Mm-hmm. Okay. By the way, we know this is we know for sure that this activity of people projecting power to to you know secure the resources also decentralizes control over those resources. So a complex emergent effect of warfare is decentralization of control over resources. We know for sure because there's 193 different countries. Okay. Anytime any person says, I'm going to make one world government, we get in a huge fight over it. We project a lot of power. We call that warfare. And as a complex emergent property of that power projection, no person, no polity has ever been able to achieve centralized control over yeah. all the land. And as they do, empires tend to crumble. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you know, you've crossed the border of of a country that doesn't want you to have control over that resource once you start getting shot at. Yeah. Okay, so that's how we communicate. This is mine. This is yours. We, we role play on top of that. We hire people, you know, the UK people. You, you start, I think it was y'all, it started the ridiculous wigs of the judges, right? Mm-hmm. The, we have these symbols of power, but it's really just abstract power. It's not physical power. And every, you know... King George or whoever when you know whoever's uh, whoever's you know coronated and given that symbol of power you'll notice they're flanked and surrounded by a bunch of people with actual power like with physical power mm-hmm. so you have to always back your symbol of power with real power it, you, do you struggle with the word power 
Uh, no, no, it's not power in this sense. It, but it, it, using your analogy, I would consider like Bitcoin mining as the wall, not an armed guard. Okay, so let's go. Let's look into that. Where's the sting? Okay. Let's Where's look, the sting? Yeah. Okay. Um, we'll jump ahead a little bit just to address this because I get this a lot. Let's say you want to secure your uh, resource, your data. Okay. One way you could do it, and Sailor talks about this. He started talking about like the uh, the orange check a lot, or mm-hmm. you know, spam, for example, is um, you original use case of of um, stuff was to hash prevent, cash. Yeah, hash cash actually goes back even further than that, but reducing spam. Yeah. Okay, how do you reduce spam? You you encode a wall. And you say, you can't send me a control action unless you accompany it with a proof of power or some proof of this, you know, some reusable proof of work. Okay. So if you do that, you've imposed a cost on the action of, of sending, you know, a email or a server request. And the idea of proof of work is, well, if we do that, then we can actually impose a cost on people who would try to exploit that control action. You can, you can make it too expensive to s- sustain a spam attack on me. Okay, yeah. so I've created a wall through which the only control actions are people who have accompanied, uh, you know, who 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 collateralize it with a with a Bitcoin. If we say that, okay. If I've done that, and this is where I think people get tri- tripped up, I encoded the wall. But I encoded a wall in such a way that the only way you can attack me is with a proof of work, mm-hmm. is with a reusable proof of work, a Bitcoin, a Satoshi, whatever you want to call it. So you've created a system through which the only way to be attacked is using this technology. So just logically speaking, it can't be a passive or uh, only, I guess, uh, technology. And by the way, if you Google or if you just control F the white paper, Satoshi says the word attack 25 times. The entire white paper is him describing how it would be useful to use this thing to defend against people attacking you with the same protocol. That's interesting. Yeah, he, I, that he is considering attacks. No, it's, that's that's right. But I, I, I'm struggling to say, like, why going through a turnstile at this wall in terms of doing like a proof of work? Why? Why does that make it a, a like a pointy weapon, not just a wall with a turnstile? Yeah, where's, like, where's the sting? Because sorry to interrupt, but okay. um, no, that makes sense. Uh, by the way, doesn't that look like a big tub of weed? Yeah, it does. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you, we talked about you know you've got borders. Yeah, you know on the southern border of the US, yep. you have a border, you have a wall. Yep, uh, not the whole country, <laughs> the whole yeah. length of the country. But you have a border. But you also have people who can shoot. Yeah. That's the sting. Yeah, you know, you have uh, the the submarines with the missiles, which is the sting. You have the airplanes. Yep. With the missile is the sting. Yep. The space force. We don't know what they're up there, but I think there's uh, weapons up there, which is the sting. <laughs> where it? Where is the sting? On proof of work. Like, you yeah. could, There's a wall. Yep. You can get through. Yep. But there's no sting. So you get through it, there's no sting. Yeah. So you've discussed four domains. Yeah. Every single one of those domains is a three-dimensional domain. It's got three-dimensional space as we know it. Yeah. And it has mass as we know it. 
Okay, so if you if you apply a force to a mass to push it a distance across a three-dimensional domain, you have produced or you have expended watts to do it. And whether those watts are used to stab you or to deflect something, watts are watts. They, these, that's how people physically constrain. We would call that in the business of, of the military a kinetic form of power projection. Okay, all four of those domains, three-dimensional domains, mass-based domains, you're projecting power, you're producing watts, you're, you're physically constraining people with watts in different ways, but at the end of the day, force displacing mass across a distance is a, is a watt. Um, you know, just from a physical standpoint, is also known as power, watts or power. You've done that in each of those domains the same way. If we expand our presence into cyberspace, if we create a new resource that we want to pass across this domain from port to port in cyberspace, we have to immediately recognize up front, this is not a three-dimensional domain consisting of masses. So there will be no forces displacing masses kinetically as we exist in other domains. It won't look like the same kind of sting we've seen in other domains. But that doesn't mean that you can't still utilize watts, power, as a form or as a mechanism to physically constrain or to impose a severe physically prohibitive costs on people who would try to deny your access to your data, your resource in this domain, or would try to denial of service attack you or try to exploit you through this domain. You can still physically secure yourself in cyberspace using watts in cyberspace uh, just like you do in the other domain, you just have to recognize up front that that stinger will not have mass and will not be in three-dimensional space. So it's going to look different. But this, the, the function of physical defense, of people duking it out, will effectively be the same. The function of physical defense remains the same. The form changes because the form of the domain is different. All right, so this gets into like, now you have to play this like really interesting thought experience in your brain. You go, okay, cyberspace, how do we try to keep ourselves secure in cyberspace? Like if I don't want you to have my data, how do I try to do that? Right now, the predominant way that people attempt to secure their resources in cyberspace, attempt to the secure themselves against the exploitation of the Elon Musks out there who are in control of the software, is to try to find some magical, magical combination of logic to secure yourself. You th people think that there's some combination of if-then-and-else st statements, for while loops, that they can encode into their software to secure their data, to secure their access to the data, to prevent them from being denial of service attacks, to pre prevent them from being systemically exploited through their software. Okay, When people act like that, they are being incongruent to 4 billion years of nature and 10,000 years of humans securing their resources in every domain that they've expanded into. It doesn't make sense for people to even believe from the beginning that you can sufficiently secure your data using nothing but encoded logic when in every other domain you physically secure your resources using power, using watts. So it, there's actually a big gaping hole in cybersecurity right now where people can't use or, or don't, you know, they can, Bitcoin solves that problem, but but. Whatever, for whatever reason, people don't realize that the key missing ingredient for physical security or security in general in cyberspace is the capacity to impose a physically prohibitive cost or, or, or physically constrain people from denial of service attacking them or executing some type of belligerent activity. But does encryption not solve that rather than proof of work? 
if encryption solved it alone, then we would say Ethereum works and proof of stake is, is enough. But you're talking about like much broader than just Bitcoin, right? You're talking about anything in cyberspace. Right. So the, the way that I look at it is how do you secure data? We can just start there. Data is becoming a super valuable resource yeah. in cyberspace. Pretty much everyone agrees. How do you secure zero trust and permissionless access to your data? How do you decentralize oh, oh, control sorry, over good, your data? Hold on. Go back a second. We, we're saying, you say everyone agrees that data... What did you say then again? Is, is a valuable resource in cyberspace. What data is valuable? Secrets? It could, could be anything. Secrets, the, IP. Yeah, so let's go back to computer theory. Cyberspace is just a bunch of bits, ones and zeros. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. Okay. You might choose to call those bits your coin. So those bits are very important and valuable to you. Someone else might choose to call those bits their uh, personal data, their, I don't know, their social security number or something. Okay. Someone else might choose to call those bits their company secrets. Someone else might choose to call those bits their right to free speech. So, so, the, so most of it is secrets that you don't want someone to get access to because once they have access to those secrets, they can exploit those secrets. But when Bitcoin's slightly different, it's a UTXO set that says, I own that UTXO set. I think we can go even more generic than that. So, like for example, you you tweeted today about like uh, censoring through Twitter, Elon yes. censoring through Twitter. Yes. Okay. So <laughs> he's denial uh, of service attacking people from producing and transferring information through cyberspace. Yeah. Okay. There is not necessarily secrets. You want to be able to say what you want. What you feel you don't mind. You're, you want people. You don't want it to be a secret, but you still can't get it across because it's being censored. Those bits of information are valuable to you. And it sucks that some you have to trust somebody not to denial service attack your ability to transfer those bits of information. Mm-hmm. So how do you sting them? How do you sting it? But but this is solved on Nostr with encryption. Yeah. But without proof of work. So how do you like something on Nostr? I don't understand the question. Further than what, what do you mean by that? So when... It, the way Nost, one of the features, awesome security features that Nostr has is um, whenever you implement like a like or voting system, that can be cyber attacked. So people can spam that, that voting system. Um, the Russian IRA actually actively does this to me on Twitter. So someone will say something super mean and it'll have like maybe like 150 views and 150 likes. And then if you click all, you, you expand who's liking this thing. They're all Russian bots. Okay, that's a cyber, a form of cyber attack. So, how do you secure yourself against some type of exploitation like that? Well, you say you can't like something unless you collateralize it with a SAT. So, when people are zapping each other on Nostr, they're actually using Bitcoin itself as the security protocol, not as money, as a security protocol. But that doesn't stop people from saying what they want. Yes. So that goes back to the the so. Y- you st- the main attack vector is still through. P- it doesn't stop them. Okay, let me back up because I think this is an easier way to explain it. Uh, maneuver warfare. We talked about that, right? Um, stop paying attention to offense, defense. Think of maneuver warfare. You want to position yourself in the best uh, way possible so that when you inevitably do get attacked, 
that you take the fight that you know you can win. Okay? Mm -hmm. So let's say that uh, human beings create some new computer network where instead of uh, producing bits from like, from like transistors or, um, you know, any, other, any of the other technologies that are in current computers. And instead, they convert electric power to bits. So they convert watts to bits. You create a new network where bits of, you know, coin, let's call it, are passing across each other because large sums of physical power are moving across each other, then what you've effectively done is you've created a network through which you can impose a physically prohibitive cost on anyone trying to send those bits and forth back to each other. This is something that I don't, th this gets back to uh, the th uh, chapter five of the, the thesis, which is you should, uh, you should consider Bitcoin um, basically a big, gigantic, heavy, super energy-intensive computer. Okay, compared to a normal computer, it is really difficult, physically difficult. Like, it takes a lot of power to send bits of information and, and settle those bits of information yeah. through the Bitcoin network. That's the point of proof of work, is to physically constrain the ability to, to change the state or to write the ledger, right? Because mm -hmm. if you do that, then you can secure yourself against someone who's trying to gain centralized control over that network, okay? But the point is, Bitcoin is a very physically expensive network, and it's physically difficult to send bits and forth back to each other. That's interesting, because that means you can use this network to physically constrain the transfer of data across cyberspace, or you could use this network to physically constrain the execution of a control action. That's why Back was like, hey, you can't send me an email unless it's backed by or stamped, as he called it, with a, with, a, uh, with a proof of work. They didn't have those words back when he first wrote it, but that's what we can call it now. Okay? So what he's done by coupling the transfer, this control action, the sending an email to a proof of work is actually made it so that the only way that you can send me an email is that if you go through the physical constraint of solving, in this case, the hashing algorithm. Mm -hmm. Okay, That means that the only way you can spam me or attack me or exploit me is through these reusable proofs of work. Why would you want that? Because I want to take the fight that I know I can win. If the only way you can attack me is by... Uh, sending me these control actions that are coupled or collateralized by a reusable proof of work, then that means I know that you cannot sustain that attack for very long. I'm going to inevitably, I can just wait you out because there is a severe physically prohibitive cost for you to spam me now. So I've created a wall through which the only way a bad guy can get through it is if they're carrying Bitcoin or a reusable proof of work, as Hal Finney would call it. And I want to be attacked by people using re reusable proof of work because I know that unlike anywhere else in cyberspace, unlike any other control action in cyberspace, that that attack is physically constrained, that you are paying a severe physically prohibitive cost in watts to execute that attack. That's how we protect against 51% attacks in Bitcoin. So, and are you saying that proof of work should be applied to all these data systems to protect them. What are you saying? I that would suck because like it would be the, like super slow and and you know, like really energy intensive to do that. 
So what are you saying then? I'm saying that there are very specific control actions that you would want to couple to a reusable proof of work in order to secure it. Not everything, not walk, a transfer walk, of all walk data. Walk me through it like I'm five, what you're actually saying, because like, I, I am okay. lost now. So like, give me an example of some data you want to secure and how this is being secured. Um, how about instead of data, a control? Well, okay, yeah, data. All right. Um, Bitcoin is proof that proof of work works. We know that it is incontrovertibly true that uh, Bitcoin has been able to secure itself using this proof of work protocol. Yes. Okay? So the control action that hold on, hold on, hold on. It's it's proved in this scenario for Bitcoin. Other shit coins that have launched have tried, and they have been fifty one percent attacked when yeah. they haven't had enough proof of work. When the incentives changed yeah. enough that it was attackable, enough power. Yes. So they've tried to use it, but they got overpowered. Like you can have a shitcoin proof of work system, but it's not going to have remotely as much watts backing it as Bitcoin does. Yeah. So th this is why I need the example of what data you'll give me, like a real world okay. example. So the real world example is control over the Bitcoin ledger. That's the easy, easiest one because everyone knows. Okay. So in order to write the ledger to add the next, you know, batch of a hundred transactions to the next block, what do you have to do in order to 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 have that privilege, that special control action of writing the next block. You have to find the, the You have to find knots, right? Yeah. Okay. You have to solve the hashing algorithm, right? But what you really like another way to say the same thing is you have to, uh, there's an exorbitant physical cost of doing that. A yeah. lot of watts are being expended. And for the right of that one control action, just to, to add the next 2,000 ish transactions to the next block. Okay. Mm hmm. That was one of the big differences between Halfini reusable proof of work and uh, Satoshi Bitcoin. Is hey, whoever gets the privilege to 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 choose which valid transactions get added to the next block simultaneously has the ability to withhold valid transactions from the next block. So you can denial of service attack people or censor people by simply withholding valid transaction requests from the next block. Mm -hmm. So we do not want, that is a very sensitive control action. We have to secure that. How do we secure it? Well, you impose a severe physically prohibitive cost on the ability to execute that control action, that special administrative privilege that you have to write the next block. Which we already have in Bitcoin. That's what, yeah. So Bitcoin is confusing because it's recursively valuable. It proves that proof of work works as a cybersecurity system. And the one of the big security things that it does is it makes it too physically prohibitive, too physically costly for any one person or polity, i.e., group of people, to be able to, to continuously write the ledger, to have that very special privilege of writing the ledger. It is so, literally, it requires so many watts now that is not realistic for someone to be able to gain and maintain full control over that. Yeah. So that's your example of how you can use physical power to physically restrict some sensitive control action to secure you against someone interfering with you. Because if he's blocking your transactions, then he's denying your ability to send bits. No, but I know all this. What I'm saying is, is there a, are you talking about other examples where this can be used to protect other forms of data. So look at Noster. Okay, okay. let's go back to Noster. But there's no proof of work in Noster. 
I don't think so. So it's just public private key cryptography, right? I'm being uh we said I I'm being I got Russian bots. A yeah. lot of people have bot problems, okay? Um Russian bots will like don't a say lot. that too quickly. Yeah, right. <laughs> um <laughs> Russian bots will cyber attack the liking system on and just distort your perception of reality because yeah, if I've if, seen it. Okay. So how do you secure against that? How do you make it too physically prohibitive to sustain a cyber attack by exploiting the likes on a social network to to tilt and exploit the the feeds? Well, one way to do it is say you can't send a like or make a like unless you collateralize it with a proof of work or a proof of power. And that's precisely what Nostra does with zaps. When you zap people money. But a zap's not a like. A zap is a zap. There's likes outside of zaps. Right. But you're using zaps as like a, I guess, a social um, signal. Signal. A social signal. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, so. But they aren't, they aren't necessary. They aren't required. Okay. And so, uh, I mean, I haven't, I think I've zapped one person. Yeah. I just like stuff when I see it. That's a like. Okay, so uh, email. Back to email. You can't send me an email unless you stamp it with a proof of work. There's a, there's several companies working on on technologies like this, like yeah, a, yeah. basically a lightning wall. And you can't send a control action, send me data, send me an email, whatever you want, unless you collateralize it, unless you accompany it with a proof. But but, but of how work. are you securing data here? You're just you're making. Um, you're talking about spam prevention here. That's spam prevention. And you're talking about Sybil. Yeah. But but but. The thesis or the thread talks about protection of data, securing the data. Yeah, that's one of them. It's protection, uh, securing data, uh, defending against the systemic exploitation of software. So that's where the the zaps comes in. It's hard to systemically exploit uh, zaps like you can do likes. You can't cyber attack zaps as easily as you can likes because it would be so I mean, you can right now because what you could do is, you know, I mean, I don't know what the biggest posts on Nostar have and what they get in terms of zaps. There's just there's a cost to making, but you could you could you could have that cost. You could yeah. spend that. You have some a choice. High roller can walk in yeah. and give a thousand Bitcoin to some posts that he likes. Yeah, absolutely. Okay? So yeah, you can still attack, but the mechanism through which you launch that attack is restricted by the amount of Bitcoin that you own. This show is brought to you by Ledin. From savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of holding today without selling their Bitcoin. Ledin has a robust risk management strategy which always prioritizes safeguarding clients' assets with no DeFi yield farming. And Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They also are dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. To find out more, please head over to ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. Also, today we have Ledger. Now, Ledger is the world leader in Bitcoin security and is the best way to own and secure your private keys. If you're still holding Bitcoin on an exchange or with a custodian, it might be the time to take your security more seriously. Remember, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. Now, Ledger hardware wallets paired with the Ledger Live app are the easiest and safest way to start managing your own private keys. You can send and sign your Bitcoin transaction with full transparency in the Ledger Live app. And honestly, look, it could not be easier. I have been a Ledger user since 2017. I love their products. and I'm still using the same hardware device I bought back then. 
Now, if you want to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is shop.ledger.com. Next up, we have Iris Energy. Now, Iris Energy is the largest NASDAQ-listed Bitcoin miner using 100% renewable energy. Their strategy is to target markets with low-cost, excess renewable energy, and they build out their own highly efficient Bitcoin data centers. They are led by a seasoned management team with a track record of success across renewables, infrastructure, and digital assets. Now, Danny and I met the team recently in Canada and were super impressed with their values, which align with us. So they are a great fit for what Bitcoin did and you, the listeners. Now, we are going to be working with the Iris Energy team on everything we do from podcasts to films and live events. And they are even sponsoring my football team, Rail Bedford. I'm really, really happy to be working with such a forward-thinking and sustainable Bitcoin company. But if you want to find out more about them, please head over to irisenergy.co, which is I-R-I-S-E-N-E-R-G-Y.co. Because the email one, I, I get it. It makes sense. The, the, when, you, when you run the math of email spam, you know, spammers used to send millions and millions of emails knowing yeah. they get the, such a tiny conversion rate, but that yeah. conversion rate will work because there was no cost to send in the spam. Yeah. You put that proof of work in there, suddenly there's a cost. If they can't match the conversion rate, they lose yeah. money. Uh, so that makes sorry, sorry, just want to say that makes sense. And as and to prevent against similar attacks, yes, but you it doesn't stop it. It's not it's not cost prohibitive because there isn't a convert there isn't the same kind of conversion rate in the end. I'm saying you can spend money on uh you could even if there was a cost of likes, you could still exploit that. Yeah. True. But you could only exploit it insofar as the amount of Bitcoin you own. I also don't and that's the key. You like, want to take the fight that you can win. If you can't launch the attack because you're prohibitive by the amount of Bitcoin you own, then you know that they can't spam that forever. You're, they're going to go bankrupt, basically, or they're going to run out. I mean, there's, there's two things on the likes thing. So Nusta has relays and people who kick people off relays yeah. is getting rid of it. But it also, there's no attack in a like. Is there? Like, I don't understand what, what you're trying to stop. Like, well, what you exploit a like. You attack people by exploiting the likes. I did this with my blocking campaign. It's, I it's, proved it's, how sorry. that could work. It's, it's, it's more of a, a problem on Twitter because the algorithm uses likes. So, But it, people liking a post doesn't have a negative impact on you. <laughs> yes, it Well, can. it can because if the, can. if the algorithm reads the likes uh, and then brings more awareness of that post to other people because of that, and it might bring the wrong awareness to people, and you have more people coming in and shouting at you and talking shit and you, creating disinformation. You can be exploited through it. Yeah, with an algorithm. But I don't think you can with Nostar because the likes just, they're just yeah. a like. Nostar, there's no algorithm integration. It's just a signal. Yeah. I use Nostar because that is one of what I think will be many different social media experiments where they incorporate Bitcoin into the system and you may think of it as a paywall, but it's not. But what, what makes Bitcoin different than like a, a USD paywall is, is that Bitcoin has is a zero trust decentralized system. And but and most importantly, it is a physically constrained system. It is physically difficult to exploit that feature, not logically difficult to exploit that feature. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last thing I'll say for for data, because I know you're 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 really pushing on a given example of of um, securing data. So uh, if you want to send goods across uh, from port to port, right, to secure that good, make sure that it gets from this port to that that port without a pirate taking it or blocking blockading it. 
you have you hire a navy, you project power, you make it too physically difficult to deny your good from getting from port to port. Let's say you have a bit of information that you choose to represent as I don't know financial settlements between nation states, okay, or just money in general. Okay, how do you ensure that that bit of good, this data, it can can get to where it needs to go without being denial service attack? That's one way to secure data is to prevent it from being denial service attack. Bitcoin proves that to, to avoid a, a sustained denial of service attack, that you can use physical power to do it. That's what Bitcoin represents from a fundamental perspective is here's a way that you can prevent, you can secure your data, you can prevent it from being denial service attacked. You can move this bit of information from one wallet to another wallet without having to fear that it will be denial of service attacked at least sustained, like you'll eventually get it from one side to another, precisely because so many people contribute to the system where it's too physically prohibitive to do it. And and so, look, some you're calling it force and a collective. I call it power force. projection. Power, power prediction. Yeah. Uh, I might call it the strength of the system, and Danny, you might call something else. But what what, what we're all essentially saying is the same thing: is that. Look, this is a this is a robust, strong system that is hard to attack. Yes, we're just saying it in different ways. But the the thing that I think a lot of people miss is the reason why it's secure is not exclusively because of the logic encoded into the software. It's because of the hardware at the base layer, like the actual state mechanism, the actual computer itself, the process through which you convert some physical state change into a bit of information is different at the base layer, whereas everything else is trying to design the most energy efficient and smallest computer network, or hardware, I guess you could call it. They want the most, the smallest and energy efficient hardware. Bitcoiners have gone the different way. They've reverse optimized it. They're creating the, the largest and most energy intensive hardware to transfer bits of information. And people don't understand, first of all, that that reverse optimization has happened. And secondly, they don't understand that... I think they do. Well, Bitcoiners do. Yeah, but I think Bitcoiners do. And I think think systems sometimes are designed necessary for what their role is. Bitcoin is a... Uh, a system which necessitates this because you want to avoid double spending and stealing Bitcoin. And if you can exploit it, you can exploit all of Bitcoin. Yeah. So whilst Bitcoin is this decentralized network that's spread over computers all around the world, yep. if you manage to ha- if you manage to hack it and double spend, you're attacking the entire system. Yeah. So yeah, not like one component of this, whereby you picked up your phone when you talked a moment ago. Yeah. My phone is protected by cryptography. Logic, encoded logic. Yeah. Encoded yeah. logic, but cryptography. I mean, yeah. my it's phone's just hard, encoded logic, though. But, it, but, it's, but it's hard to break into my phone. If I'm, if I'm, if I'm gone or I'm dead, we well, you know. We've seen the FBI have gone to Apple and said, can you unlock this phone for us? And they're like, fuck off. It's, but, it's logically hard. But, but if you get access to my phone, you only have access to my phone, not all of Apple. So systems are sometimes necessarily designed right for the use and the risk. Right. Yeah. Profile. Yeah. So if 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 the data is not super important, like international financial settlements, then yeah, use logical constraints, use encryptions to do it. Okay. But but what makes Bitcoin so special is that it doesn't rely exclusively on encoded logic. 
It doesn't rely exclusively on encryption. Yeah, but it can't. It, it, it's it's that symbiotic relationship between in, encryption and pr- proof of work is what yeah, provides the security. Proof, proof of work, what that really means is a, a crap ton of power. Like you can't, so let's go back. How do we decentralize control over land? No, we, I know. I mean, we engage yeah, in a global scale physical power competition for control over that land. And as a complex emergent effect of that physical power competition, control over land is decentralized. How do you decentralize control over the ability to write the ledger? You engage in a giant scale physical power competition, and as a complex emergent effect of that of that global scale physical power competition, the control over these bits of data we call Bitcoin is decentralized. So you're achieving the same complex emergent effect of warfare using the same physics as warfare by imposing physically prohibitive costs on anyone who would try to to deny your service to your bits. So, so is all we're doing really here is having a different way of describing what Bitcoin is. Yeah. <laughs> this is all it's come down to yeah. is we, we're seeing, you see it how it works, I see how it works, you see it. We all see exactly the same way. Yeah. You just see it, you're just describing it in a different way. We spent two hours <laughs> yeah, no. to figure out you describe it so, differently. So, like I said, there's a reason. This is important to this, right? Yeah. So, let's talk about why. Describe it this way. Yeah. First of all, whenever you're describing any form of software, how it works, um, all of that can only be done using metaphors. There is no technically precise way to describe the functionality and purpose of, of software. The word software itself is a metaphor. At the end of the day, all that's happening is a physical state changes from on to off, and we choose to represent that as a bit of information, either true, false, one, zero, some Boolean logic. Okay, and then we just in, in you know write some special combination of logic to 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 navigate the the flipping of those bits. And so we describe, uh, we give descriptions of software. This is like a fundamental like principle of computer theory and computer science. We, we describe the software based off of what we think the intended functionality of that is or based off of the easiest possible way to explain how it works. So when, when, how, you know, when, uh, when it was first cr- created, it was called, when proof of work was first described, it was called a client-server architecture. Um, then it was called uh, a stamp by back and then a hash cache by back. Then it was called proof of work by these other random people who also called the first proof of work a, um, I, keep, I always forget because it's so ridiculous, bread pudding protocol. Okay? Uh, then it was called reusable proofs of work by Hal. Then it was called Bitcoin by Satoshi. So we're just calling it different things, using different words, but that's how all software works. Yeah, of course, we yeah. can, we, so our job is to find the right combination of metaphors to describe the intended functionality and the, the properties of this thing. Actually... To the right audience. Interestingly, who was it yesterday to say said to me, how do you describe Bitcoin? Oh, we're on the call with the marketing lady. Yes, yes. Okay. I was asked how to describe Bitcoin, and my response to her is, is I said, it depends on the audience. Exactly. So uh, what we're really coming down to is that uh, Jason Meyer has written the book, A Progressive Case of Bit- for Bitcoin. Yeah. He's found a way to talk about Bitcoin to progressives. And Jason William has written Hard Money You Can't Fit or Fuck With, which is a way to talk to bros yeah. <laughs> about Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, Alex Glenstein has written what he's written. Yeah. Uh, check your financial privilege to write yep. to activists and people care about human rights about Bitcoin. Yep. Is this really just Jason Lowry's way of talking about to people about Bitcoin in Jason Lowry's world? 
it's funny when people finally like stop and read and listen to me, they all come to the same conclusion. It's like, oh, okay, well, I can agree with all the logic you're saying. It just takes, you just have to take the time to listen to the logic. More or less, most of the time. More or less. I'm still not on the, let's not recycle this, but I'm still not in the place where a wall is a projection of force. For me, a wall is just a barrier. That's that's me. We can go around this in circles. Danny's similar. But I'm really interested in what's the point. And I think the point is, is this whole thing is, you. I think you believe in Bitcoin. You see the benefit to the US. You see it as having a national security reason for the US to be interested in it. And so you've found a way to explain it to the people who need to hear that within the government. Whereas what I do is I find a way to tell my mate, Sam down the pub yeah. in Bedford, and yeah. that's all we're doing. Yeah. So let me. That's that's that all right. A bit of information can represent any kind of information, including financial information, but not limited to financial information. So we can call a bit a coin if we want to use it as money, but we're not restricted to only using that as money. Yes. Okay. So pretty much everyone can agree with that. It's basic logic. Okay. So. What Bitcoin represents is a way to physically secure information that we choose to call our money using the combination of not just logic like most systems, but also whoppingly large amounts of physical power. Yeah. Okay. That is, from a cybersecurity perspective, revolutionary. We've been talking about it for 30 years. Bitcoin finally proves that it works in an operationally relevant environment. It is proof that proof-of-work works as a physical security system. That's something that we have not really seen in, in the world of computer theory. So first of all, right there, boom, that's a big deal. That's fucking cool. Yeah, it's really awesome. Obviously, if you create the most physically secure bits of information, that would double as a kick-ass money because you could stop entire nation-states from denial of service attacking you. Yes. Okay? So it makes perfect sense that the first use case of this badass physical security network would be money. But that wouldn't be limited to just money because bits of information can represent any kind of information. So it's just a question of specifically what kind of information or control signals do we want to physically secure ourselves from. So Bitcoin, if you zoom out a little bit, is now a physical security system in addition to a kick-ass money. I think you've told this stuff too many times now because the speed at which you're telling me data (laughs) is is getting faster and faster. Look, look, I I get what you're saying, but, but what do you care about? Are your interests here in... Where else can this technology be used or in communicating this to the government so they don't make the grave mistake of turning their back on Bitcoin? What do you care about most? Mostly it's the latter. Yes. And so let's talk about the advantages of framing it like this. (coughs) Okay. Okay. We we talked about how if you create a wall, a logical constraint that says you can't spam me or execute a control action unless it's collateralized by Bitcoin, what you've effectively done is said the only way that you can attack me is if you can collateralize it with Bitcoin. We talked about how you can't cyber attack the zapping system uh, beyond the amount of Bitcoin that you own. Okay? So so by using Bitcoin as a cybersecurity network and refusing for data or or control signals to to be sent across this encoded logic gate, unless it's collateralized by Bitcoin, then what you've done is effectively mean, you've effectively created a system where the only way, the only attack vector is through Bitcoin. Okay, 
Now let's say people figure this out and they start just building these encoded logic walls. You can't do anything. You can't send information. You can't spam me unless you collateralize it by Bitcoin. Okay. Now the only way to attack or systemically exploit is through Bitcoin. In that world, who has the Bitcoin is a big deal. Like you don't want Russia, China to have all the Bitcoin in that world. You don't want your adversaries to have all the Bitcoin in that world. If you've created this, these logical gates where the only attack vector is through people who wield Bitcoin, which is the attack that you want to take, you want to take the fight that you can win. Because if you at least reduce the attack vector to there, you know that they can't sustain that attack because they're physically constrained. They don't have enough Bitcoin to do it. And money is power and Bitcoin is inevitable. So bit, I believe that Bitcoin actually it can equally be called bit power because you're converting watts into bits and you're using those bits to physically constrain to secure your resources just like we do in every domain. Yeah. I believe that whoever has Bitcoin will have bit power in the future. You will be able to project powers in ways that we can't even imagine yet. And what, but, but purely because money is power? Purely because the bits of information are literally produced by power. Like what ha a hashing infrastructure does is convert large quantities of watts, power, physical power, into bits of information. That is completely unique at the base level. Okay, see, this is the bit where you're losing me because you're saying whoever has the Bitcoin has the power, but the power is the value of the Bitcoin. And so... Not exclusively. The power... We, we what, happen what, to what, apply what, monetary value to these bits. Of course, but what other value do they have? To physically restrain anyone who tries to transfer those bits. Right. It's too physically difficult to, to send or spam a bunch of control signals or to denial of service attack people who transfer these bits. So, so the other value of Bitcoin, besides if you just monetize those bits, is that you can use those bits as a way to physically constrain people. Or if Where? You how? How? Tell me how I'm... So I know I've got it as money. Yeah. And if I'm... You know, if I want to send some to Danny, I've got it. Yeah. And I know if my Bitcoin, if Bitcoin goes to $10 million, yeah. I've got a lot of wealth. I've got a lot of power. That wealth, what yeah. I can do. But how else can I use these bits to you physically constrain people? You can't send a server request to me or an email to me unless it's collateralized by Bitcoin. Okay, so yeah, but, but it's still money. But what you're saying is the reason it works is because it's ubiquitous and it's the best money that people trust. What I'm saying is, when I say you can't send me an email unless you collateralize it with Bitcoin, you're saying, okay, the cost hold is... On, hold, on, hold on, sorry sorry to interrupt. I think I get it. I think what you're saying is we finally have the tool to do this. I can't send you dollars to... So if I say you can't send me an email unless you collateralize it by Bitcoin, yeah, I'm imposing two costs on you. Yeah, I'm imposing a financial cost because... Society has chosen to monetize those bits. Mm -hmm. So there's the financial cost, an abstract cost. Mm -hmm. But then there's a no kidding, real world, three dimensional space physical cost. You can't send that bit from, that bit can't go from your wallet to my wallet unless the base layer architecture expends a hell of a lot of watts to do it. Like a lot of watts are being spent. So there is now a physical constraint on the transfer of that bit. So I've now defended myself or secured myself against this attack. But that happens but, outside of me. I don't have to care about that. Why do I have to care about that proof of work happening? It's just happening. Like, where's the, I, all I have to do is... Do you understand where I'm getting lost here? Yeah, I'm getting a bit lost too. Yeah. Like, I, I don't understand 
like all you're doing in that case is you're excluding yourself from the system unless something's collateralized by Bitcoin, which I understand, and that might be really useful at times. But it's it's you excluding yourself rather than well, maybe that's the same thing. Maybe I'm just saying it from the other, the other direction. Yeah, it's you're excluding yourself from a whole bunch of different server requests, spams, email requests, whatever. You're you're just saying none. I don't accept any of those except for the ones that have been stamped with a proof of work. Okay. Uh, so you basically saying you have to be like the the Bitcoin is the most trusted protocol to do this. So you have to be part of Bitcoin to start having benefits of these services. Yes, right. But you, why 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 in this world does more Bitcoin mean more power? Because you can like if you say you can't send me an email unless it's uh, collateralized by a SAT, you've imposed a physical cost using power. Mm-hmm. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's buying the physical cost. Yep. I get the physical cost. Okay. But now you can only send me as many control actions or server requests or emails as you have Bitcoin. So you are you are physically, logically, and financially constrained from attacking me. Hold on. So the financial constraint is having the Bitcoin to do it. The, the physical constraint is being part of the protocol using Bitcoin. The financial constraint is the value of the collateralized SATs that you use. You lose that value. Yeah, your net worth has now decreased slightly. The physical cost is all the watts that's required to do it. Yeah, but I don't need any watts. That's other people doing that. Yeah, they're doing it on your behalf, but you're paying them for that service, just like you pay people to secure your property. In that, I'm paying the transaction fee to the miners, and you're also accepting a little, small, exponentially decreasing amount of uh, debasement because of the exponentially decreasing block subsidy. Okay, I think I'm there. So, so we still haven't talked about why. Why? Yeah, why? We frame it? Yeah. Okay. So, why frame it like this? Yeah. Is it? Sorry, drop my pen. Um, is it back to my uh, recent film I made with Troy Cross? He thinks the the U.S. government is on the verge of making a huge mistake with Bitcoin. So we can describe software using any metaphor that we want. Yep. Based off of intended functionality, potential use cases. Um, and ability to explain it to other people. So again, I'm this military officer at school, spook, <laughs> and my and my job is to explain the national strategic security implications of this emerging technology to my bosses. Yep. Up to the Joint Chiefs. So like General Brown himself greenlighted this. Okay. So how do I explain the value? Of this Bitcoin thing to that audience in a way that they understand, okay, in a way that will orange pill them, so they un- so they understand the difference between Bitcoin and shitcoin. Mm-hmm. They understand the difference between proof of work and proof of stake, or they at least can recognize that there is no substitute, there is no second place proof of work network yep. to to Bitcoin. Okay, how do I orange pill them the fastest using words and uh, metaphors that they understand the best? And at the same time, how do I also simultaneously, I got to find a careful way of saying this since I am, uh, how do I find a way to make it so that it is clear that the Department of Treasury and the Federal Reserve are not qualified to be talking about the national strategic implications of Bitcoin? See, this is really interesting. So me, this is where me and Danny were talking about it, and we had like uh, a point of difference in that uh, using the word war. But but I think we're constantly in economic war anyway. 
I think we're I think we're economic war now. I think I think the US has used the dollar strategically. Sanctions are an act of war. They are always so, have been. Yeah, but in, in many different ways. And I think we're seeing a reaction to that right now with the BRICS nations, what China's doing. I think I think there is always an economic war at play because it isn't just people doing business with each other voluntarily. Right. It's money is used strategically on a geopolitical level. So I understand that and I see that. And so and I've felt for a very long time that there's two ways money can go. It can centralize the way China's done it. And it can be tied to social systems and control, okay? Or it can be decentralized and represent freedoms. And I think if the US tries to centralize, it cannot do that as well as China because it has institutions and relatively free people with guns who can fight back. So if you can't if you can't win centralization, win decentralization. Or yeah, but even if you just delete this idea of money altogether and you think of how do you physically secure bits of information in cyberspace? How do you preserve people's freedom of action, ability to transfer bits of information or utilize this cyber domain without being denial service attacked? Okay? You frame proof of work as that thing and you frame Bitcoin as the largest proof of work network. Yeah, people have chosen to financially like value these bits, but that's just Bitcoiners. Other people could use these bits for other reasons too and, and are starting to. Okay, If you have that conversation, if you have the power projection co- conversation, if you have the physical security conversation, if you have the conversation where we trace how every domain that humans have expanded into have searched for and found some way to physically constrain others in order to secure their system, then suddenly you know, you get back to this conversation that we had before, which is, if they've got nukes and you don't, then the only response, the only rational response, like, you have no choice. You must master this technology. You have to adopt it as quickly as possible. If the world is adopting a physical power projection technology for cyberspace, a new base layer physical, physically secure internet, and the only way to attack people through it is by collateralizing their bits, i.e. by using Bitcoin, then you must adopt this technology. This is not a conversation. This is not a negotiation. It is adapt or die, cooperate or die. The Department of Treasury is not qualified to be talking about this. The Federal Reserve Bank is not qualified to be talking about this. If we just throw away this this coin part, all these other people masquerading as experts in proof-of-work technology look ridiculous, and at the same time, you prove that the ESG narrative about this being inefficient is also equally ridiculous. So maneuver warfare, take the fight you can win. If you want to defeat the Department of Treasury, all these ESG fudsters, all these shitcoiners, and the Federal Reserve, take them on head-on, and while simultaneously say that we have no choice but to adopt this, I don't care what you have to say, we have to adopt it then frame it as I just fra- framed it. Yeah, see, see, this is the interesting point, is that I agree with you, but but, but I'm not. I'm on a different framing. Mine's a little bit more simple, but it's exactly the same point, is that we don't know... We, we, a lot of us think Bitcoin is inevitable, but it's not inevitable. Yeah, but we fair. think it's got a high chance of being successful. Um if you want to strategically be a wealthier, more successful nation, because that has a strategic position for you, and there is a chance that this becomes uh, a global money, and you can't stop that happening, yeah, 
then you might as well adopt it, be the best at it, yep, and be a step ahead of everybody else. Yep. It's you, you know, you might as well. You know, the U.S. had a benefit for being the first that had nuclear weapons. Yeah, whatever we think of how horrific it was, there was. Yeah, yeah. we talked about that earlier. So be the first and best with Bitcoin. The problem is if you frame it. First of all, there are so many people who are way more intelligent and talented at discussing Bitcoin as money and the and the financial implications of money than I am. Yeah. So, like, I'm already out like classed. I can't make a better argument than other people have already made about that. But like, equally as valuable to nations is security. Equally as valuable mm-hmm. to nations is the ability to transfer financial information back and forth, and the ability to physically secure your ability to do that. Equally as valuable to nations and people in general, like something that they will buy off on is, hey, we created a non-lethal form of warfare where we can, uh, you know, we can secure our data, we can decentralize control over our data, but we can do it without causing any fratricide. In fact, in fact, the side effects are awesome. We get cheaper energy, we get better infrastructure, we get we get it harder for this cabal of people to exploit us through our financial systems. That is, in my opinion, an untapped angle that people haven't been considering. And I think that we could help people navigate the shitcoin jungle if we, if we start there. And it's not a think. I'm doing this actively in, in the government now. I can flip people in high places from Bitcoin's a waste of energy to is it too late to build our own proof-of-work network within 30 minutes using this, this argument. So I know for sure that it orange pills people really quickly and gets them to think and step back and be like, holy crap, why is the Department of Treasury leading the conversation on the National Security Council? What, who says they know anything about this technology? Why isn't the DOD involved with this? Why isn't DARPA involved with this? Why aren't we considering this entirely new unchecked angle? And the last thing is, let's just, for the sake of argument, just just for the sake of argument, let's assume this is a correct theory. Mm-hmm. That it is true that we have created a new form of warfare, a new form of physical security system, a new way to compete against each other to con- control this underlying precious resource. Then what are the consequences? Like if I believe this, you know, the consequences of me saying it and being wrong versus the consequences of me being right but never saying it. Dude, it's the same asymmetric bet that Satoshi said. Yeah, yeah. was it Satoshi? Yeah, I, think it was said, Hal. I think it was Hal. Hal. Yeah. Said, in case yeah, it catches on. Yeah, this could go to hundred million. Yeah, according, you know, in case it catches on, you might as well get some. Yeah, it's the exact same point. So here I am, a student at this school, and I'm just like, okay, well, this is an interesting theory. At the very least, it's it's an interesting conversation. If I'm wrong, who cares? People will forget. It doesn't matter. But if I'm right, this is a national strategic security imperative then that is my fiduciary responsibility as the National Defense Fellow at MIT, is to see it and to say something. And so what kind of progress have you made? Like, are you making real progress now? Yeah. Can you tell us any of it? Um, I have publicly said that I'm advising the White House. Let's see how well that's going. so flash. (laughs) I'm advising the White House. Well, no, I I was saying, uh, you know, clearly that's not working well. Yeah. Um, I've publicly said I've, I've been invited, invited to, I haven't started, to advise the uh, Strategic Technology Office for DARPA. Um, I've publicly said that I was greenlight from, by a Joint Chief who's now becoming the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. I've, um, and then there's like a whole bunch of other just 
like pretty much just like any organization tied to defense, they're at least like, oh, that's an interesting. I haven't thought about that. Okay. The goal is to get to the point where, because we know what's happening. You see it. The 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 people who do not want Bitcoin to succeed are pushing a big ESG narrative to make it politically difficult to overcome. It's politically unpalpable to say Bitcoin is good because of all the propaganda that it's killing the environment. Yeah. At the same time, you clearly see that the people who don't want Bitcoin to succeed are building this NACSEC FUD too, National Security FUD. So you got ESG FUD, you got the NACSEC FUD. Okay? One way to chop that off at the pass, right, to cut that flank is to have the U.S. National Security Fellow who was paid for by the Congress and by the DOD to advise the DOD on this exact subject to produce his technical analysis of this, of this thing, to, to, to testify in front of the Congress about this. Because business people, bankers least of all, are qualified to be talking about the national strategic security implications of of physical defense technology. They can talk about coins all they want. They can't talk about defense technology. So if you simply reframe it, then you kill the crypto people, you kill the ESG FUD, you kill the credentials of all these people with blatant conflicts of interest that don't want this thing to succeed. And then you put me, the guy, saying, this is the most important thing. We must buy this. We must be supportive of this. We cannot afford to tax the crap out of hashers. We cannot afford to push this industry outwards. It, in my opinion, this is my way of fulfilling my fiduciary responsibility to my nation as a military officer, as a U.S. National Defense Fellow. And by the way, like I obviously think I'm right. Like I, I don't know if I am. It's just a theory. All things start at theories. So but if yeah. I am right, then holy shit, it's like I have to say this. I have to be vocal about this. Yeah, it is every... Uh... If you're a hammer, and then everything's a nail. Let me talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> By the All way, right. Danny made me say it. Okay, let me talk about that. <laughs> Let's say 98% of the population hasn't served, doesn't know anything about physical security, yeah. doesn't devote their career to this, okay? Yeah. And someone invents a nail. Okay, 98% of the, of the population are a bunch of screwdrivers. Someone invents a nail. Even the person who invented the nail is a screwdriver and calls it a screw. Okay? Everyone's looking at this nail, all these screwdrivers, 98% of everyone in the population is looking at this nail but calling it a screw because they don't know what a nail looks like. They're not trained in, in this thing. Okay? The hammer comes in and looks at all the screwdrivers and say, you guys realize this is a hammer, right? Like this is clearly a cyber, this is clearly a physical security system. This is clearly a new way for humans to project power, to physically secure, to physically constrain, to physically cause prohibitive costs, just in a new domain without three-dimensional space and new mass. It's going to revolutionize the field of security, of warfare, of cybersecurity, of national security. Um, it is to the benefit of these screwdrivers that they hear that from the hammer. If only 2% of the population are hammers, are people with experience in this field, in this profession of warfighting, then one, we know that the population is predisposed to not recognizing the hammer when it comes in, and also that the population should listen to the hammer when he says this. At least indulge him for a second and, and think 
through first principles and hear them out. That's why like, I really liked you because when everyone else was yelling at me on Twitter, you took me seriously. You sat me down, you bought me steak, and you listened to me. You didn't make well, judgments. Well, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let's, let's dial back a second. Uh, I was invited to dinner, and I always pay for dinner. Yeah. <laughs> so I didn't invite you to steak. Uh, Greg Foss did. I bought you dinner. Uh, I was right. just, I was, I have a different role from a lot of people, and my role is to try and try and see where the value is and give everyone fair time if they deserve it. Uh, I just saw you kind of getting into fights, kept saying, just thinking, stop blocking people, stop arguing. And just because I wanted the clarity of what you were saying, my problem was if when you fight people, the people you're fighting, I don't get, then get clarity from them because I'm not sure if they're arguing with you because they're in a fight or because they completely disagree with you. Yeah. And so, look, we took a long t- time to get here uh, and the right amount of time. Look, some people are going to listen to this and they're going to be like, what the fuck are you on about, Pete? He's talking nonsense. Others are going to go, oh, this was helpful. And, and that was just the way I've got to do it. But, but I try and listen to everyone. And I think that's the right way to do it when you're sat in this seat. But if 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 it's a nail, then you want the hammer to see it as a nail when everyone will not recognize it because they're screwdrivers. So let me be of, indulge me for a second, and let me perhaps provide some value from a different point of view, just like everyone else from their other experiences provide their point of view mm-hmm. on this thing. The, at the end of the day, at least we had an interesting conversation. At least you thought about it differently. Maybe you learned a couple random facts that you I'm didn't I'm more learn. interested in how, how Danny feels now. I think, I, I, I totally understand where you're coming from now. And I, I get why you try and frame it this way. I don't know whether I still accept the, the framing of it as warfare. Um, but I mean, who am I to say? Um I just think I, I prefer to look at Bitcoin as the peaceful revolution, like a completely opt-in, voluntary, rules-based system that is not imposing any threat on anyone. That's like definitely my perspective on Bitcoin. But well, I do understand why you're framing it this way, and I think it will be useful to probably a lot of people. And, and this is why I think it's interesting. I even almost framed it at the start. I think you see the same imperative not to screw this up as I do, as right. you do, as Troy Cross said at the start of my film. Yep, We all see it. And we all see that they sh- the, the same decisions they should be making. Yeah, we've just come around it in a different way that we understand the world and what it is. And so the whole Jason Lowry software thing is it's Jason Lowry's way of understanding Bitcoin and the world. Right. In in the world of people you operate with. Yeah, and that makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, can I mention because I think we have a little bit of extra time? Can yeah. I mention the blocking thing? Because you mentioned it like multiple times. Yeah, look, look, yeah, okay. I think you blocked too many people. Okay. So um, before the blocking campaigns, I publicly announced I'm going to be doing a blocking campaign because I'm trying to illustrate the way that social media can be exploited. And so like for this last campaign, I've done this now multiple times. People don't see it because you only see what's on your feed, right? And so when people... So like the second this this last time I did it, I was like, okay, here's what I'm going to do. Uh, the principle of homophily, which is the principle of birds of a feather flocking together, people tend to like to hang around with people that they have similar interests in. Okay, homophily. The way that most social media networks work is they they recommend feeds to you, like things to show on your feed, based off of uh, your friends and what your friends like, not what you like. Based off what your friends like, not always. 
No, sometimes it's what they think you like, what your friends like. Sometimes they think what I think there's a range of things. So, there. so like Twitter and Facebook, they they know who your friends are. Yeah, they're tracking what your friends are liking, and they're and your feed includes the things that your friends like because they're preying on or not preying. That's a bad. Uh, word. They see that as a signal that you're more likely. Come off Yeah, yeah. you're more likely to like this thing and be happy that this was on your feed and have the dopamine hit. Yeah. Because your friends who think like you through homophily liked it and had the dopamine hit. Okay. So they'll get that recommendation. Okay. There's also another phenomenon on, especially on Twitter, it's called the J curve phenomenon, where you, like, if you're, I'm in a public forum, just like a random sample of people in just like a city, and I say something controversial or just any position on anything, you'll see probably a normal distribution curve where there's a lot of people who like it, or no, there's a little bit of people who like it, there's a little people, bit of people who hate it. But in the middle of the bell curve, most people just don't give a shit about what you have to say. Mm-hmm. Okay, public forum in the real world, three dimensional space. That's how you know that's how it works. In social media, there's a J curve, where instead of a bell curve, it's a J curve. So on the side of the uh, of the people who like what you just said, like who agree with it or passionately agree with it, it's like kind of higher, but like a little lower. So there's a there's a it's like the small short part of the J. Um, there's a there's a smaller about amount of people who will like or retweet your thing because they agree with it um, or engage it in a way. Maybe not like or retweet, but just engage it, view it, read it. Okay. The most people will um, most people will not have like any reaction at all. Will not engage your tweets regardless of what you say. But then if you say something controversial, if you say something that pisses people off, you'll get the tall part of the J. So many people will like, comment, retweet, talk crap, stay on that screen, right? And so the way that like Twitter works is they take advantage of homophily. They recommend stuff to you based off of your friends like and engage with, but they take advantage of the J curve. They recommend stuff to you based off of what your friends are pissed off about, what they're most engaging with, which is through the virtue of the J curve, what gets them talking. It's the controversial stuff, okay? So, which is why Twitter's hellscape. Yeah, it is. Okay. So, what if I want to exploit that? What if I want you to talk about me? I want people to see that I have just produced a book. Okay. Controversial books sell great, a lot better than books that no one's talking crap about. So, I upfront, transparently, publicly say this is what I'm going to do. I am going to block anyone who likes or retweets a complaint about being blocked by me or, or, that's usually what I did last time, okay? If I do that, I simultaneously take advantage of the J-curve and homophily uh, at the same time. So what happens is, um, like, you know, it, it, by the way, the second time, uh, the first time I did it intentionally, the second time I saw the opportunity, I can't remember who it was, is hold the knot or someone. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, someone said something, like, really bad, or it's, it just pissed me off, and so I blocked them. And then hold the knot, doubled down and said, why did you block that guy? And I was like, hold on. You know, I deleted t- the tweet because he misunderstood it. This is not, I hope we, you know, we just move on. But like, if you're going to double down on this, then I'm going to take advantage of this opportunity to, to basically shill the book. I told him this explicitly. I'm, I'm publicly tweeting like, hey, uh, you know, I'm going to do this again because I already showed you how this can be exploited just to illustrate one of the core principles of the book, which is how your feeds and, and information flow can be systemically exploited. People are network targeting you through your homophily. 
I was like, if you do it again, I'm going to do it again. And so he, he was like, okay, fine. So every single person who liked or retweeted Haldenlaut's post about me being pissed off that I blocked some person, I blocked them. Through principles homophily, that means that those people are the most likely to make their own posts that are pissed off about me blocking them. So I find those because they're the, you know, they're, you can just search your name. And if you liked another post about being blocked by me, I block you too. I block you too. That's how Troy Cross got blocked. Uh, that's how several people, you know, I was indiscriminate about doing it. In fact, if, 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 you know, the higher the follower count that complains about me being blocked or being blocked by me says something, the more views, the more likes, the more I can target that network. So what I've done is I've effectively targeted this network of people who just are mad that they got blocked by me specifically. And I've now caused a behavior. I've gotten all of you to talk about me. And then I was like, now look at my orders on, on Amazon. And I showed how I doubled it instantly. And I did this publicly and I told everyone about it. You didn't see it because it's not on your feed. Yeah, but I did. I, see, I saw people saying, I've been blocked. I've done, I haven't even engaged with them. You've seen, you saw people complaining about being blocked by yeah. me. You didn't see me saying, hey, I'm going to run this experiment again to show you how you can yeah. be taken advantage of yeah. and exploited. I can cause a behavior where you will talk about me and I'll, cause some, I'll create a controversy out of nothing. I think it's net negative. I, do, I don't think you... I, I wouldn't do it again. I just, um, personally, I just unblock all those people. I think it's... Well, it's I, like, I did each yeah, time. Like yeah. the, I think the bigger goal here is like, you could have done a few podcasts and doubled your sales, or you could have had public discussions and doubled your sales. There's probably other ways you could have done it. I just think it's ne- it's unhelpful. I've, I'm blocked by so many people, and I wish I wasn't, because I've been a dick at certain times. You know, or like sometimes a whole different opinion. That's like yeah. talk about guns in ways people don't like, but whatever. What I'm saying is, it's really annoying because like there's some people I don't want to have. I'd rather be having the conversation with them yep. than just us blocked. So let's like, talk even, about even if I don't agree with them. Let's talk about net negatives and stuff like that because because I think it's the opposite. Well, maybe it's in some cases. So first of all, everyone who was blocked was unblocked each time I do it. I yeah. block them. I unblock them like three days later. And so the people who are complaining about being blocked, some of them were complaining multiple times. It didn't register in their heads that they've been blocked, unblocked, and blocked again. And now they're complaining about it twice. It just seems like such a waste of energy. The, like it's it's almost like it's almost like cheap marketing. What I'm saying yeah, is no, that it is marketing. But you're, like, it is cheap you're, marketing this, yeah. you're this military guy in Space Force working on this big detailed Bitcoin plan, who's done this like book that a lot of people have like, highly recommended and like. And then you're running a cheap marketing scam. It's like the so two don't align for me. The book is about the dangers of being systemically exploited through your software. I am demonstrating how and why you can be systemically exploited. I can cause you to do something. I can get all these people to talk about me simply by pressing a block button, by network targeting you. You are being exploited this way all the time. You're complaining about it because uh, Elon's doing it. I'm showing you how it happens. I'm explaining transparently how it happens. Yeah, I get this reputation of being this a-hole who blocks people until they listen to these conversations and they realize, oh, okay, he actually has an interesting point and he's actually illustrating mm, the core principle of his book. But that's not guaranteed. Some people will go, I'm not even going to bother fucking listening. Or other people will say, are they going to listen to it but, but already have like a built-in bias? I mean, look, you've yeah. done it now. I'm just saying, look, I've messaged you a few times. I've said, I don't think you should do this. I think you've done the test now. 
I think the important thing is to test the thesis. That's the bit now. Yeah, like, I mean, is it right? Is it wrong? Like I've done what I think I can do, which is help you explain it. Now you need to do the conversations with the people who will challenge you, which you know it's not really my role in this world. And I think you need the, the bigger audience for that. That's my just my just personal yeah. opinion. I mean, I, I don't intend to anymore, but like the opportunity came up, and so I was like, okay, well, I already did one demonstration. Now can I show to the audience of people who actually follow me and listen to what I these conversations? Can I show these people that it can is a repeatable thing? So before I started, I said, this is what I'm going to do, oh, and no, this is it. what's going to happen. So now I've shown to my audience, this is a repeatable exploitation. I can do this, which means everyone in control of all your feeds can do this too. They are causing a behavior. They know how to do it by network targeting you. Yeah, people, the, the haters are going to hate me no matter what. Are they going to double hate me because they get blocked? Like, I don't care. No, but I think you're like you're feeding a tribe of people to come and hate you that maybe wouldn't have before. Um yeah, and well, look, listen. We go around in circles in that. Uh, I care. I care more about the content, the explanation of the content, the testing of the content, the testing of the thesis. That's what I care about. I now want to hear you. I'm going to go back and listen to the Marty one again because I, I, I listened to the first time, but I, now I've got this framing. I want to re-listen to that and, and uh, you know see what you said. But this was interesting. It's, how long did we just do? It's nearly two and a half hours. It's like our longest show in ages. Yeah. Anything else you want to talk about? Anything I didn't raise that you wish I had? No, I just really appreciate this conversation. I've I've wanted to have this conversation with you ever since that dinner. Yeah, I'm I'm so happy that you invited me on. I hope um, I hope that uh, people watching this can can at least if they've listened this long um, appreciate a different point of view. You don't have to subscribe to it if you don't want to, but at least this is. Um, this is what I think, this is my way, as weird as it is, to contribute to the space. Yeah. All right, software, check it out. Available on Amazon. You need an Audible version. Yeah. You need to do that. People have done like AI Audible versions. I did, suck, man. I did a uh, reading of like the first introductory, and more people are buying the book than are listening to the free me reading it. And so... It, it, you but know. that's because it's a free intro. They want the whole thing. I, uh, okay. I think, I, I don't know. I don't know what's involved. Listen, let's do this again. Let's give it a few months. Let's revisit. Let's see the feedback. Let's look at the next steps. There's a whole bunch of other shit I want to get to. I didn't even talk about aliens with you. I want to talk about aliens with you. <laughs> we will get back into that. Thank you for coming on. Appreciate you coming in. Good effort. All right. What do you think of that? I think I'm going to get a lot of emails about this. There's certain shows I know I'm going to get a lot of emails, and I know I'm going to get a lot from you on this. You're going to be telling me that you agree with him, that you disagree with him. Either way, I want to hear it. I want to hear what your thesis is. For me, you know, I thought it was simple. He just had a new way of explaining Bitcoin to his cohort, which is military people. I kind of think he wants the same end goal. I'm not so keen on the whole idea of thinking of Bitcoin as warfare. But either way, let me know what you think. Drop me an email. Hello at whatbitcoindid.com. All right. I will see you all next week.